Hello and welcome into the Feels Like 45 podcast. I'm Cade Webb. As always, I am joined by Dustin Ragusa. Dustin, are you back uh, and enjoying your week after your weekend in Arlington? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, the game didn't go well, and thanks for asking, Cade. But I had a good time in Arlington, hanging out at Texas Live. It's always, you know, it's a cool stadium, Jerry World, so... Got to sit with six friends in the game, including our friend of the pod, Adam Lunt. So I had a great time, even though the game wasn't great. How was the experience for you? I think it's impossible to walk into that stadium in a championship environment and not, I mean, win, lose, or draw. I, I know how I felt lo- leaving the Baylor game. I know how I felt after this game. It is a reminder of where Oklahoma State is as a football program anytime they play in that game. They've played in Jerry World before, but in those championship environments, uh, I I turned to my dad at the you know walking into the stadium it was just like, man, this is really cool. Like this is really cool that our team that we've been you know pouring our blood, sweat, and tears into, so to speak, for you know two decades plus, does this. And uh, there wasn't always a time they did that. Not to you know sugarcoat it and make it uh, you know well, it, it's all good that we got there. I think. For me, I just, it was a great experience. It was fun. I think it's impossible not to have fun in Arlington. There's so much to do. Saw a bunch of friends tailgated with basically our tailgate group. And um, yeah, man, I I left with a uh, sense of disappointment, but also gratitude for having, you know, been there. I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah, I, I agree with you. You know, se- second Big 12 championship game appearance for Oklahoma State in the last three years. They lose this game 49 to 21 to Texas, but I agree with kind of everything that you just said. And not to mention, you know, it felt packed in there. They had this, oh. the attendance at 84,523. Yeah. I thought it seemed way more crowded than the Baylor game. My memory could be a little clouded there, but it just was a rocking environment, even with it getting not out of hand early, but Texas kind of command having a commanding lead kind of throughout the game, it still was pretty full until like the fourth quarter. It was cool playing all due respect to Baylor. It was cool playing a program like Texas with a massive fan base. There wasn't an empty seat really on either side of the stadium, but when Texas is good, man, they travel so well and they're really loud. And in that stadium, in that environment, I was thankful that it was Texas because it just makes for like, if you're a college football fan, remove your fandom. Like those are awesome moments to be part of. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm not going to, you know, wax poetic about the long, the longhorn logo, but there is something about it when you're going against that logo. And, uh, I would agree with you hundred percent. It was packed in there. I mean, I, I felt it walking into the stadium. Oh yeah. There's a ton of Texas fans here and there's a ton of Oklahoma state fans here. It was different than, uh, when Baylor, you know, when we played Baylor. So. Yeah, it was. A, and I know we don't talk uniforms on here a lot, but the all whites from Texas and the all blacks from Oklahoma state looked really cool on the field. 
you know the halftime performance by Nelly was great. It I really was. That. <laughs> he had the uh the bands out there with him for hot in here. So it was it was a fun time all around. The other thing, Cade, and I know I know we need to get to our ad read before we get into the game, but just kind of wanted to mention I picked the game Texas winning by seven. I think you had Texas by 14, but both of us after our prediction said we saw this more easily being a blowout in Texas's favor than Oklahoma state winning this game, like a better chance of that happening. And I think you could kind of tell in our score predictions, if we didn't have that Oklahoma state bias, we would probably pick Texas in a blowout. So it almost, you know, kind of went along with how I was feeling during the game, just kind of knowing that going in, not, not knowing that Oklahoma state had no shot. I thought they had a shot. But it kind of just played into the fact that I'm sure people are listening, like, how'd you guys have a good time? But going in with that mindset, cheering the guys on, but knowing that Texas is a really good team that's now in the four-team college football playoff, that that's kind of how I felt during the game as well. Yeah, it was really kind of the game that I expected. I think your your analysis and breakdown of the matchups that Texas presented set me up in a way to confirm what I was already thinking in that they're really good up front on both sides of the ball. Their skill talent, they probably have an advantage at and quarterback. I, I felt like that was a lot to overcome. And uh, yeah, you, you made the comment, how could you have fun? You know, knowing the game went the way it did is because I walked in there thinking there's a good chance that this happens. So uh, I, I totally agree with that. And I hate having that mindset and you and I don't normally have that. This it's pretty rare. Just, yeah, this met it because we're, I feel like we're more overly optimistic than, than most of, you know, my friends, at least that I talk to about games. So it was weird to kind of have this mindset. It was just, man, after watching four UT games, prepping for the pod, I was like, these, this is a bad, bad <laughs> for this Oklahoma state team. Yeah, it, it really was. And I'm, I'm excited to get into it with you because it didn't take very long for all the things that you and I talked about last week to to show themselves. I thought, you know, Texas adjusted to what Oklahoma State was doing defensively. It's almost like they expected that. And so they came in with a game plan to just pick Oklahoma State apart underneath, never really put the ball in harm's way. So it, I'll be interested to get into it with you. Before we do that, though, I'll remind you that this podcast is brought to you by our friends at Charlie Hustle Clothing Company. Charlie Hustle is a vintage-inspired clothing company based out of Kansas City that specializes in collegiate and hometown apparel. Charlie Hustle wants you to be the best-dressed fan this season, so be sure to check out their wide selection of officially licensed collegiate apparel today and show off your school spirit all season long. With over 30 schools to choose from, they've got you covered with all of your collegiate apparel needs. So shop today at www.charliehustle.com. And when you do, use our promo code 101215 for 15% off all non-sale items. Charlie Hustle, vintage made fresh. Dustin, I had my Charlie Hustle shirt on underneath my undefeated pullover that let me down on Saturday afternoon. So uh, <laughs> something had to give. It was either Texas's O-line is not going to play well or the pullover was going to take its first L. And uh, lo and behold. Hey, I, it rode for a long time. I also, I was wearing my Charlie Hustle. Yes, you were. Old school. I guess you'd call that like an old school vintage Letterman jacket type look with the Curse of Cowboys. I tried to wear that 
to Bedlam. I brought it with me, but that game was so warm. Mm-hmm. I didn't end up wearing it. So had it on for this game. It's awesome. I, I'm not sure how good I looked in it, but <laughs> you should definitely check it out on Charlie Hustle and you'll probably look good. in it. I'll tell you. It's not a BYU jacket. That's when you break out for the big games. And I thought you did uh, a fantastic job. You did look good in it. It was it, it's a thank nice you, jacket. I, I comment. I was fishing for a compliment there. Yeah, so no, I, I know. I was not going to let that one <laughs> slip past me. I know you well enough. But well, uh, Dustin, let's let's jump into it. I'm I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah. So, Cade, this is one we always go long on the offense, and maybe we still go long here. But when you only have 201 yards Uh of total offense, and if you look at the rushing yards, 31, you know I like to add them back. Even if you add back the kneel, the fumbled snap, and the sack, which was really just Alan Bowman not knowing where the line of scrimmage was and scrambling two yards behind the line instead of throwing the ball away, add all those back, you're still only at 41 rushing yards on the game. 250 passing yards, which isn't terrible, but 58% completion percentage isn't great. I thought after having one of their better games, the wide receiver unit struggled. Might have been one of the worst showings all season from the offensive line, but was a little bit to be expected with Texas's defensive line. And I think, you know, Cade, we wouldn't even we don't even need to do the breakdown. I could just read this Gundy quote from his press conference, post-game press conference. They're a good football team. We didn't get off to a good start, and I felt like that's what we needed to do. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's kind of the bulk of it right there. Yeah, I think so, man. They um, man, if you just keep it on the Oklahoma State side of the ball on offense, Texas is very good up front. They are fast in the secondary. I actually thought Oklahoma State did a pretty good job of attacking them on the perimeter. They just got down so far. The game started getting away from them like we've seen most of the season, or not most of the season, like we've seen a couple of times this season. And then they get away from what they probably thought was going to work and set some other things up, and they really just had no shot. This felt familiar in that regard. But I just I looked at Texas and honestly, for the first time the season, thought Oklahoma State was was a little bit overmatched. Like that is a better football team, really. If you look at Oklahoma State's unit, like Leon Johnson, you know, I I think struggled in this game to get much separation at all. Rashad Owens had a couple of nice plays, a couple touchdowns, but overall, over the course of a game was not as effective as you would have liked to see. They're, really, the offense was was Brennan Presley. That's what you were reduced to, and that's that's not balanced enough, to, to take a word from Mike Gundy. That is not what they wanted to have. Yeah, completely, especially the amount of targets you had to throw at Presley to even get close to 100 yards in that game. I think he had like 15, which we'll get into his stats in a little bit. But you know, Coach Gundy talked about they knew they had to try and throw the ball in this game more than they had in other games to try to win because Texas is so good up front. And as the game went on, you know, they took some deep shots early as the game went on. I thought they did a Bowman did a little bit better job of getting some of those short passes out, getting the ball out quick. You could tell coming out of halftime that they wanted to throw some wide receiver screens and they ended up working and kind of leading to some good drives. I mean, the drive with the fumbled snap on second and one, they just had two really successful wide receiver screens killer back. Same play on each side of a uh, different side of the field. I honestly, Cade, I don't want to go way too deep into this just yet, as we'll kind of talk about the passing game later. But I thought screens should have been a bigger part of the game Seemed plan like from the jump, knowing that you couldn't run the football effectively against this team. But 
Coach Dunn also after the game said we needed to run Ollie to get the RPO game going and we need to play action, but they were just never really able to get much going on the ground. Ollie got banged up multiple times. You know, he Coach Dunn also talked about sending those, taking those deep shots early to send a message, but it started a little bit of a spiral. And you can kind of see that out there. They weren't really able to get in a rhythm because they weren't hitting on that. So Coach Dunn, the last note from the coaches that I'll say before we kind of get into the scheme is Coach Dunn said this is the best Texas team he's ever coached against. Uh, um, is that really up for debate? I mean, that yeah, that I mean, Texas team reminds me of like the old Texas teams, like Colt McCoy, Vince Young, like they look different. Yeah, no, I completely agree. This has a lot of talent all over the roster, which we talked about in the preview. But just kind of getting into the overall scheme, Cade, early on, we talked about it already. Coach Gundy was trying to throw the ball. Coach Gundy and Coach Dunn trying to throw the ball to keep OSU in the game, loosen things up for runs later, and trying to play a little bit of tempo to wear out the Texas defensive line, which I think ended up working to their detriment as they're not able to get in a rhythm. Mm. And then Texas is moving with tempo on offense. So it's just, that's what led to this spiral. I believe that coach Dunn was talking about. And, you know, we, we talk about our guy, our guy, Ian Boyd over at inside Texas. He, we've had him on the podcast. He was talking about before the game. And he, I think he even wrote about it on inside Texas that Texas defensive coordinator, Pete Kwiatkowski was going to try to come into this game and play some press coverage, whether that be man or quarters. And they did that early. And you could tell the physicality from Malik Muhammad and Terrence Brooks was really, I I mean, not so much on Rashad Owens. I think he's okay with the physicality, but you could kind of see with LJ three, he was struggling. He's seen press, but I don't know if he's seen the physical the physicality that Texas cornerbacks were bringing this game. Coach Gundy talked about after the game that this was the most physical Texas team that he's coached against in recent memory. And I think one of the places you saw that start, not obviously the defensive line and the linebackers, but the cornerbacks were really bringing it in this game. Yeah, that's a great point. It's really easy to focus on what they did over the course of the game on the defensive line, but their corners, I mean, they're, I felt like they got away with two pass interference penalties on the first drive. 100%. They were letting them play. Yeah, but it's a great defensive play if it doesn't get called. So to your point, it was early that that happened. Even on the next drive, there there was one to Brennan Presley that I felt like probably could have been called as well. So it's not really even a shot at the officiating. It is that they were physical, and it was, it was evident early. Yeah, it really was, and – those that press quarters and press man, what was happening was because they were kind of making the Oklahoma State receivers fight to get off the line of scrimmage and to get open, it's messing up the timing on those glance slant RPO throws. And you could see Bowman was having a little bit of issue yep. finding the throwing window. And if you're double clutching on those, you either have to throw it away or you're going to have an ineligible man downfield. And that just led to this kind of talking about them getting thrown off of their rhythm. They weren't able to hit on those RPO throws that had been working so consistently in pretty much what the last five or six games, they've yeah. had really heavy RPO. Well, in the BYU game, they were leaning on it late. So it was, it has to be 
you know, shocking to the system when what you have been used to doing, which is running the ball, setting up the RPO, neither are working. And so to your point, you know, there was a play early in that game where they tried that glance RPO and Bowman kind of double pumped it and threw it behind LJ three from where I was sitting. It looked like it could have been picked off, but that was like the first time it was like, Oh no, like this is, they are really struggling to get a rhythm here and and it didn't really change. Yeah. And if Oklahoma state, Alan Bowman's talked about this after the game multiple times, if Oklahoma state's not able to run the football in RPO effectively, it kind of makes their whole offense crumble. And you really saw that in this game. I also thought, you know, Oklahoma State was trying the motion. We'll get to the motion percentage, but it was pretty high in this game comparatively to some of their recent games. They were trying to motion, and I think what it looked like to me was get some of the Texas linebackers in some conflicts where they're having to cover Brennan Presley or where that late motion has a safety lined up over Presley pretty far off the ball. But Texas and Kwiatkowski were doing a really good job of rotating. You saw when Presley would motion, instead of someone following him, or like I said, having a linebacker lined up on him, they would rotate all the way across from the safeties to kind of their nickel star player. And doing that quickly allowed them to get the coverage matchups that they wanted and instead of having Anthony Hill, their you know weak side linebacker, edge rusher specialist on Brennan Presley, they had Jade Barron on Brennan Presley, which is a much better matchup for Texas. I also thought into the boundary, they were kind of dropping Ethan Burke, their buck linebacker, into coverage at times, which I hadn't seen them do very much. Again, I didn't watch every single Texas game, but I watched quite a bit. And I think that helped out to kind of reduce some of that space into the boundary for a guy like Brendan Presley to operate. Just a lot of smart decisions from Pete Kwiatkowski. And it again, it just kind of led to Oklahoma State not being able to get anything going early. It's interesting going back to your the line you you mentioned about what Alan Bowman said, you know, how the offense crumbles uh if they can't get the run game going. Mike Gundy said he said it in the game. He said it after the game. He said it before the game. He said it during every press conference of every game this year about how they can't get one dimensional. However, Dustin, it's either like after the way this season has gone after 13 games, I feel very confident saying that it felt at times it was either two dimensional or zero dimensional. Like, I don't think there was a one dimensional existence for this offense. If it was if it was not two-dimensional they didn't have anything you could look at the UCF game you could even look at the first half of that uh, Houston game where they struggled to run the football that was that's kind of the story of the season for me is yes I agree that the offense really struggles when they can't run the ball but when they can't run the ball it's because they can't do it on either those base sets or because they're adding a man into the box and the defense doesn't have to change anything so it's really not one-dimensional it's more like zero dimensional to half dimensional so it just bugs me because that's been the story this whole season yeah and texas the way they were shifting like you mentioned the way they were shifting the motions and stuff it looked like they were never in doubt about how they were set up. And I even heard, I think it was Brendan uh, Presley point. after the game. I actually forgot to note who said this quote, but he said Texas was so sure of themselves 
on defense. Every single play, they looked confident, knew exactly what they were doing. And that's not a shot at Oklahoma State's offense. I thought they did try to mix things up. We saw formations we hadn't even seen in this game, some motions we hadn't seen. We'll get into the motion stuff, but, you know, Leon Johnson going in motion, I think quite a bit more than we'd seen him in previous games. But Texas just had a really good game plan on defense, kind of to your point. And then, you know, my last kind of general note before we get into the PFF snap counts, Sweat, Murphy, and Collins were as advertised. (laughs) I think Tavondre Sweat scoring a touchdown as well was like, okay, that guy might actually be the best player on on this football field today. And uh, they were as advertised. You're exactly right. Uh, I have nothing more to add. Yeah. Uh, PFF snap count wise, I just had two notes. That's the most snaps for Taylor Materko at right tackle this season. My understanding is, and I don't know how much was talked about before the game. I actually went back and listened to the pregame, and I don't remember hearing much about Jake Springfield. But after the game, they talked about it. And then Robert Allen wrote about it on Pokes Report, talked about it on his radio show. He was actually, and Coach Gundy, I think, alluded to it as well in his his postgame presser. Springfield was actually really sick to the point where he was puking before the game, almost like uncontrollably, not like a nervousness puke. And that's why he was not able to play. I actually thought in the snaps that he did play, he wasn't terrible for being that sick. So shout out to Springfield for even trying, but that's why Materico had so many snaps at right tackle. I think it's his most snaps at right tackle ever in a game at Oklahoma state. Man, that's something about Arlington. The last time Oklahoma State played there, they had some sickness issues as well. So, yeah, it's a bummer that Springfield didn't play. I don't know, you know, grand scheme how much it changes, but it was a bummer. Yeah. And then Ceci uh, Velahi. Uh huh. Most snaps in a game, second game recording snaps outside of the, uh, the UCF game. So that was really cool to see him out there. You know, Kate, I hate to say it because I'm not just comparing them because they're Polynesian guys <laughs> and they're both, from, you know, they're both from the same area and everything like that. But his body size and the way that he moves on the field is very Jalen Warren-esque. It is Jalen Warren-esque. And I'm trying to remember, like, he's not like a running back Oklahoma State has leaned on heavily in the last couple years. So it's tough for me to draw like a true comparison, but the way he runs behind his pads, I think he's going to be pretty good. I mean, he came in and knew the system, but his like, it's like a body control thing for such a young guy. Having not played much, his form and technique like looks the part. Well, I think it helps too, that he did so much at his high school. Mm -hmm. He was wide receiver playing defense, kick returner, He played everywhere, and that's why I think he didn't have a ton of big-time offers because his carries and yards, if I remember correctly, weren't astronomical by any means because he did so much other stuff for the team. Yeah, that's that's a great point. I he's he appears to be a really good athlete. I we haven't seen him in space yet, but he he seems like he could take one to the distance if he got a crease. Just just getting a good gander at those thighs, I bet he can squat <laughs> a lot. I was pretty high up in the stadium, which actually is like not the worst seat. I, I was I was pleasantly surprised, but I couldn't. So I'll take your word for it is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, d- please. Anytime I'm breaking down a guy's thighs, please take my word for it. I thought we did that on our other podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be clipped. That'll yeah. be clipped for sure. <laughs> All right. Moving to personnel in motion. 
The first note I have, Cade, because I thought this was very interesting and kind of went along with something we talked about specifically in the preview. Honestly, I think you actually talked about it in the preview. After running 22 plays out of 21 personnel against BYU, so that would be two running backs, one tight end. In that game, it was a running back fullback and a tight end, but counting the fullbacks as running backs. That was the most all season. We also saw it used quite a bit in the OU game, several games late in the season, 21 personnel with Cassidy, Josiah and Gordon out there was a big formation personnel group used during games in the, in the in like game plan. They only ran three plays out of this personnel grouping on Saturday. And I think the reason why Cade is because adding tight ends and fullbacks into the formation is just going to cause Texas to add yeah. more defensive linemen into the formation. You're going to put another NFL caliber guy down there because Oklahoma state is adding guys into the box. And it's just going to make for harder one-on-one matchups for yeah. your offensive line. I think the plan would be to run out of spread sets or to use two back sets, which we actually saw quite a bit of in this game. Oklahoma state went with 20 personnel 27% of the time, a few of those snaps were Gordon and Cassidy, but there were also quite a few that were Gordon and Sessi on the field together. And I think another reason they went with this is because using that swing motion where Sessi runs out to the flat mm-hmm. behind the line of scrimmage pre-snap and using those kind of swing screen RPOs in your run game, that's almost like having another run option with that swing pass. And against a team like Texas, you almost need that extra run option. Like, like we talked about in the preview, I think I said it. It w- This would be a great game to have Spencer Sanders, a zone mm. read type quarterback, because the only way to really hurt Texas in the run game is to get their edge guys in conflict because it's really hard to run it up the middle on them. And I think, because Alan Bowman's not a runner, they were using Sessi in that swing motion to try to kind of lighten the box against UT. And I love the idea. I love, we talked about, they need to do stuff they haven't done all year. They went to that, I think eight or nine times. And that's something we haven't seen all year, except for one snap in the BYU game. Yeah. It's, it's unfortunate that they couldn't do it with full health in the running back room. It's no shot to Sessi. He played well. And I don't really know, like, does a Jaden Nixon, like actually change the, you know, outcome of the offense as a whole, because you were able to run those plays with your, you know, healthy running backs. I don't know, but I love the chess match and the approach there and love the breakdown. You know, it makes a ton of sense to not put a tight end or a fullback in there. That would have been a major mistake and uh, glad to see that they didn't do that. But, you know, ultimately, Dustin, I think that they were reaching down into the bag for whatever they had to try to offset what Texas brought in the middle of that defense. And it's extremely difficult because I think their defensive backs are – I mean, back to your original point earlier, they're very physical, but I also think they're more sound than they've been in years past. Makes it just extremely difficult to to gain any sustained yardage, and I think there's a reason that Texas Tech wasn't really able to do that. Um, teams have struggled with this as Texas has really gone on the way up as the season has ended. They are peaking, no question about it. Oh, yeah. They're de- they definitely looked like they were peaking in this game. Kid, here's another storyline for you. 
Oklahoma State rushed for 2.1 yards per carry on first down. We've talked a lot about first down efficiency. That led to a run-pass split on second down of 17 pass plays to four run plays. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> I, I mean, when, you, when you're having to throw at 17 or 81% of the time on second down because you can't gain any yards on first down, it's going to be tough to win yeah. against anybody. And then when you contrast that to what Texas's numbers were, when which we'll get to, um, it that may that's like the easiest way to look at how a game went for either team. It's like, oh well, Oklahoma State could not gain yards and Texas couldn't be stopped. Easy, yeah, got it. Thank yeah, you. It was tough. Okay, pre-snap motion. Oklahoma State actually increased from the BYU game from forty to forty-seven percent against UT. We saw escort your favorite. We saw orbit. We saw that inside-to-outside motion from Presley, motion across the formation, LJ3, which I mentioned motion quite a bit in this game, the swing motion from the running back. Also, something new, or not new, but I don't think we've seen it a lot. Brandon Presley was lined up. Again, I think this was because they didn't want to put two tight ends or a tight end and a fullback on the field. Lined up as an H-back, but kind of in a receiver formation not really down like what like in how josiah johnson lines up at the h-back but in that spot in almost like a double wing formation and multiple times they kind of motioned him out in that fast motion cheetah motion right before the snap so again just to kind of wrap up the initial skiing stuff before we get into the offensive line i do think they were trying things that they haven't shown i just don't think anything was working (laughs) That's the best way I could say it as well. I mean, they couldn't really run the ball, couldn't really throw the ball downfield. They they had a look at one with Jaden Bray that may have been a touchdown, and they missed on it. Rashad Owens makes a you know Herculean effort. To your point, they tried a lot, and not very much worked. Their best success was behind the line of scrimmage into the flat. You know those curls. You know six to eight yards down the field. That was about all they had offensively, which is not a recipe to win against a team like that. Yeah. Moving to the offensive line, Gundy said he thought the blocking was okay. Coach Dunn kind of echoed that sentiment, but then he, you know, he said the offensive line and Ollie got us here. Got to give a lot of credit to those guys and the Charlie Dickey. It was kind of like a, you know, pat on the back when really he did not think they played very well in this game. Yeah, I, mean, I did want to note, really quick jason brooks will be back in the spring but he's not going to be back for the bowl game or anything that injury is going to knock him out until the spring but you know when you go look at the pff stats and then when i go look and you know i go play by play with notes on the game i normally pff either our numbers don't jive on the offensive line pressures or they have more this game, I think I actually had more pressures noted given up by specific offensive linemen than PFF had, and they still had quite a bit. You know, just starting with Cole Birmingham on the left side, they had two PFF pressure pressures. I thought he struggled in pass pro and mm-hmm. run, run blocking. He had a solid zone block on Ollie's longest run. The yeah, early. Run that was a great block. zone first quarter. But then right before that, he whiffed on his own block. So it was just kind of an up and down game for him. I didn't think it was his worst game of the season. You know, we, I think that was a couple of games ago where I talked about that. I just didn't think he, I didn't think he was great, but again, he's having to go up against Collins Murphy and sweat for the entirety of the game being in the interior. 
not to mention guys like Baron Sorrell and Ethan Burke. And I just think physically the offensive line as a whole got dominated in this game. I, if you go back and watch, they are consistently getting knocked backwards off the ball. That is where I was headed. I, you know, I, I will, we'll go through each of them as we always do. But if you go back and watch this, there were moments for each of them individually, but they, the problem is they came individually. <laughs> like it, it could be Cole Birmingham having a solid block, but even on that play, Mahalski and Wilson are struggling with, I don't know who was on the Texas defensive line in that spot, but they were struggling behind Birmingham. So it was a game where I don't, I don't think I could look at a run play and say that was blocked. Well, like that, that whole play was blocked. Well, start to finish. It, w- it would be tough to find one. There was only 15 true run plays that you even have to evaluate. A hundred percent. I think uh, that's so point one and two. Spend- a ton of time on the run blocking just yeah. because there wasn't that many snaps, Yeah, but just staying on the left side, Cooper, I thought he actually was okay in this game. I had him with one pressure or sorry, PFF had him with one pressure. I had two in the second quarter, the fake screen bluff touchdown pass. I, I thought he almost was one of the reasons him and Materko both, had pressures on, gave up pressures on that yep. play, which almost led to that not being a touchdown. Bowman had to throw it falling backwards. And yep. one of the times where I thought he truly did have to throw it falling backwards and not <laughs> by his own accord. And then the check down to Ollie at the end of the second quarter, he almost allowed a sack right there as well, which would, would have not been great. But outside of that, I thought he was pretty good for what he was being asked to do. He got up to the second level a couple of times on in the run game releasing just straight up. I didn't think it was terrible. Kate, if you don't have it, I didn't have much notes on Cooper. I kind of wanted to get to Mahalski. Yeah. Because there's multiple things to talk about with him announcing today. He's coming back next year, which we can start with that. This is a guy, Cade, who you and I have sung his praises all year outside of snap issues, which are very important, but, and we'll get, we'll get to more of those in a second. This is a guy who got votes for big 12 offensive lineman of the year. Yep. And was, Big 12 honorable mention, and I think probably was the next guy up at center if they were to extend it to one more unit on that Big 12 team, just from kind of looking at how those votes shook out. Having him back is big time, and I get the concern about the snaps, but you're talking about a guy who was probably third team all Big 12 center coming back next season in his sixth, I think it'll be his sixth year with Oklahoma state. Yep. So Mahalski, this is a very interesting one for me because I don't see the vibe in, in the reaction of a player like this coming back that you would expect. Like he is, I, Dustin, he's as good of a center as Oklahoma state has had in five years. I, I, I would have to go back and look, but He's one of the best offensive linemen that Oklahoma State has had in recent memory, definitely within the Charlie Dickey era. This is a big deal. We talked about this a few weeks ago as if he could come back, you're likely looking at a preseason all Big 12, at least first or second team, whatever it's going to be. You're looking at a player that's that's going to be on that list in Joe Mahalski, and I think is the anchor to keep things together on the front of that offensive line. So, you know, they, they are actively going to pursue offensive linemen in the portal that can come in and play well early. 
They need depth. They need starting quality depth, and you can get that in the portal, and they're going to do that. So with for Mahalski, having that come at the anchor, at the center position, is a massive deal. Don't overstate it. Don't underthink it. It's a big deal. Mahalski coming back is a big one. Yeah, and and I get the argument for guys like Austin Kowecki, Jacoby Sanders, maybe entering the portal, but these are also guys who can play guard, and I think Kowecki can play anywhere on the offensive line. So I wouldn't get hung up on the fact that Mahalski is coming back could cause one of those guys to jump in the portal. Sanders is still only going to be a sophomore. I think getting a guy like Mahalski back, if he can replicate what he did this season is big time. Now that being said, or sorry, Kate, go ahead. I was, I was just going to say something real quick on the, on the hopping in the portal and thought in today's game, like, I don't know if you can manage a roster that way. I don't know if you can honestly worry so much about, well, this guy may hop in the portal if we if we don't, you know, it, you're going to develop your own players. And whether it's this year or next year, the odds of them hopping in the portal increase exponentially. So you have to put the best player out there. Joe Mahalski is the best player. I am excited about the future in that offensive line room, but that goes across the board. You have to put the best player out there that's ready to go right now because developing doesn't mean the same thing it used to. Yeah, no, it's it's a great point. It's a, a sidebar, to... but I'm I've been thinking a lot about that. No, it's a great point. I'm glad I'm glad you brought it up. All that positiveness being said, I think this was Joe's worst game in Masbro all season. <laughs> the PFF had him with three pressures. Oh, I I had him with two, so they actually had one more than me. But three would be his most in a game all season. So on that touch, no one blocked well on that touchdown, the fake, the bluff screen touchdown pass. And then in the third quarter with 245 left, there was a snag concept where he almost gave up a sack. And I believe that's the one where he gave up the one QB hit that PFF has him with. He's only allowed a QB hit in one other game this season. I do think, you know, a couple of times he had a good, good blitz pickups, but I thought when he was asked to go one-on-one with Murphy, or one-on-one with Sweat, it was not good. But I don't know how many people have good pass snaps against those guys. And then the high snap in the third quarter was killer. Huge. You're down. I'm not saying Oklahoma State can come back and win the game, but you're down 35-14. to You're about at midfield. It was second and one. You had just come off two wide receiver screens that had gained, I think both of them gained over six yards. That's a drive where I think you could have gone down and scored a touchdown. Then it's 35-21, and maybe Quinn Ewers, even though I don't think so, because he looked very calm and confident pretty much the entire <laughs> game except for that pick. But then it, maybe at that point, somebody's getting a little nervous. It's a lot of what-ifs there, but that was a killer snap. And he actually well, had two. I had two bad snaps on the game. Well, the vibe on the sideline then becomes, well, we've been here before. Like, the 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 way they talk to each other would have definitely – you know, been a familiar conversation and start getting some guys to believe, but you know, it was a, it was a really bad time for that. I Mahalski had an impossible matchup with, with sweat and Murphy directly across from him. Easily the toughest matchup he's had all season. He handled Dante Corleone. Well, he handled other really good defensive tackles. Well, didn't seem like he handled this one well, but it's harder when there's two. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, Maholsky, we've talked about his struggles with a true odd front, zero tech nose. 
And I think he's actually improved as the season yep. has gone on. But Agreed. To your point, with all three of these guys kind of coming at him over and over and over again, I just think it was too big of a task. And I honestly think it led to the bad snaps as well, even though he's had bad snaps in other games. I just think when you get beat like that for the entire game, you're going to, it's going to cause you to mess up in other spots, which is tough. Yeah. I mean, Texas defensive line is unbelievable. I'm going to hold my thoughts on that until later, but they're extremely good. Kate, you know, what's not good when Joe Maholsky has his most PFF pressures allowed in the game, when Preston Wilson breaks his record as well in the same game, they also had him with three. I actually only had him with one, but they had him with three. I'm not sure where the other ones came from. I'm assuming I probably could have missed one, but first play of the second quarter, the um, the interception play, that was a pressure that he let oh, up that yeah. I had him yeah. with. I do think, I didn't count them as pressures, but him just getting beat, to I, I thought a lot of the times, I didn't count it as a pressure because Bowman was getting rid of the ball. But this was his, I thought, this was his worst pass pro game all season. Not so much guys getting by him, but he was getting driven straight off the line of scrimmage, right at the snap, backwards, basically end Allen Bowman several times. And that's a knock that we've had on Wilson since the offseason. Not that he's not a strong guy, but just on the field at times, he looks to get blown backwards. And against the talent that Texas had on their D-line, I think that was very, very obvious in this game. So a lot of guys were getting blown backwards in this game, but I have this, you know, when you can see the number like so clearly and it's 74 all the time, like you're right. And it's not really to single him out, but when you go back and watch that, he's getting turned around like consistently in this game uh, and and really, as you said, pushed backwards and turned around. So it was a tough game for him. I think Wilson's a really good offensive lineman, but I think your diagnosis of him that you gave, I think that was after the Arizona state game of very like highly technical lacking in maybe sheer strength. I think that still holds some water in, in this game. And again, he would, throw me a mile well yeah but we're not yeah yes and me too with (laughs) the same arm it's just what it looked like yes same arm it just what it looked like in this game and then we can kind of skip right tackle k to move to running backs because we talked about jake already him being sick and then i I thought taylor materico i had him with two pressures pff had him with one i thought he was really bad in pass pro and he I, I just, you know, he hasn't been great in pass pro in other games. So against this kind of talent, I just thought he was, he wasn't very good. I, I don't think right tackle is the spot for him. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't either. It, I'll say something that it kind of goes back to the development piece. Like they need starting quality depth. If a, if a Springfield goes down, you've got to be able to sub somebody in there that's ready to go at that spot. And it's not a Materco thing. I think it's a the, it's a program thing at that point. So Materco's been at guard. That's where he's been when he comes in. He's probably not ready to go at tackle. Well, that, that's what you and I have talked about. This team is full of guards. They are. They've got depth at guard, and they've actually got guys you could probably slot in at center if you needed to. It's the swing tackle, I think, right. is what you're talking about. They that's really exactly. only need one guy. 
like that, that could play both sides. Right now, I think they're just plugging and playing guards at tackle behind Springfield and Cooper, in which Springfield, I think, is maybe even more of a true guard. Cooper, I'd say, is maybe a little bit more of a tackle. Yeah. So it's 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 a team full of interior linemen, and they're kind of plugging and playing. I, I get it. But I, I do think some of the younger guys, there's some tr- true tackles in that group. Yeah, you went exactly where I was going. I, I Dalton Cooper's been one of the best players on this offense this season. But he is even probably more likely a guard on Texas's yeah. offensive line than he is a tackle. So totally agree with that. Let's let's get to the running backs. This, this one yeah. should go quickly. <laughs> okay, won't spend a long time here. And we've talked about Sessi a little bit. Just going to read through Ollie's stats: thirteen carries, thirty-four yards, zero touchdowns. That's two point six yards per carry. He did have six targets in the past game four receptions for 54 yards. So he did get yardage in this game. Still almost got up to 100 all-purpose yards. I think he was at 88. So it wasn't like he was invisible. The problem was, I think he went down three times in this game and two times had to be carried off to where Sessi had to come in after him. I just There's just not a ton to break down from this game, Katie. You could tell he was hurt. You're talking about a guy who moved into sixth in the single season all-purpose yards list in Oklahoma State history. Whoa. Coach Coach Dunn even talked about they wanted to try to get some things going before giving the, the ball to Ollie heavily, and I get it, especially if he's banged up. He's the guy that got him there, sacrificed his body throughout the entire year, but he just was not almost every single one of his rushing yards. I think 29 of the 34 was after contact. He only wow. had one missed tackle force. The only other game with one missed tackle force was the UCF UCF game, zero 10 plus yard runs. He only had one or he only had that. He only had one in one other game, big 12 game. So zero was the lowest in big 12 play. His long carry was nine yards he had a, his long counter run was six yards. And like I mentioned, he was just taking shots this entire game. You could tell he was frustrated. I think, you know, when they show him kind of freaking out at halftime, I almost think it was more the fact that he didn't feel like he was a hundred percent, whereas he's like mad at the team or anything like that. Or how it, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm sure it could be construed many different ways, but to me, it felt like he was mad at his body because he's put it through so much this mm. year. And you could just tell he couldn't, he didn't have the burst that he normally does at the second level. No, I I think for me, the thing that's disappointing is that, you know, I mean, Texas has done this to everybody. Like Alabama couldn't run the ball on them. Uh, Kansas State struggled for most of that game and found something late. Most teams have struggled to run the ball against Texas. I would have loved to walk in there and have the entire country watch Ollie Gordon do what he's done all season, but that was a horrific matchup. It just was. And unfortunately, Ollie Gordon, you know, will will take some of the butt of the joke, you know, from the Texas fans, from even some of the players. I don't know if you saw any of this on Twitter, but a lot of talk going back from the Texas side after that game, which is disappointing because Ollie Gordon, you know, is one of the probably one of the best individual players, not just in this league, but in the entire country. And so to see that it's like, ah, it's a, it's more a product of your team was better than his team. It's, it's not an Ollie Gordon thing. 
but it's also disappointing that, you know, he may have just not been very healthy and ready to go in that regard. But that's something we have talked about for weeks now is what's the actual health of Ollie Gordon. We'll, we'll never know, you know, you hope to see him in the bowl game and, you know, his future obviously remains, you know, a little bit uncertain just with his stature and, you know, the, the, the way NIL goes, you literally won't know until he actually tells you himself. And even after that, you know, things have changed. This is a different world. And so um, I'll just say this, Dustin, we got here with Ollie and it was an awesome season to have a running back like that in Stillwater because it's been a long time. Yeah, Kate, I mean, he still has one game left, and he's at 1,614 rushing yards, adding on 326 receiving yards. He's going to go over 2,000 all-purpose, 20 touchdowns rushing, one touchdown receiving. Like Coach Dunn said, he got them here along with the offensive line. Not much to break down from this Texas game, but this is a guy we're going to be talking about a lot in the off season, but Kate, I I don't really have anything else on it from this game. I I think we can hit Sessi stats and then kind of move on to the wide receivers. Yep. That's fine. So Sessi had two carries, seven yards, two targets, two receptions for 12 yards. Every time he touched the ball, it looked like there was going to be some electricity happening, which is something that we feel when Jaden Nixon gets the ball on the edge, except Sessi shows a little bit more, I think of that lateral side to side. I wanted to read just a couple quotes. Bowman said, Sessie came in and played at a high level. And while he was, t- after he said that, Coach Gundy goes, that's a good call. You should be a coach. I should have mentioned something on him already. And then Coach Gundy proceeded to give Sessie a bunch of praise for playing well as a true freshman in this big game. And Coach Dunn also said he did a really nice job. But one missed tackle force. His run after the catch ability is awesome. He picked up the, third down with one of his catches for the first down conversion. I, I thought, I thought he was awesome. I think I've already said most of that stuff, so I don't really have anything else on him, but I'm excited to watch his career at Oklahoma state. Yeah. I mean, it's rare that you get, I mean, we had glimpses of young talent last year, but this happened so late. A part of me wishes, I mean, I'm excited for the bowl game. Cause I would imagine that they're going to honor the fact that, you know, he's, he's out there I have no clue the health of Elijah Collins. I have no clue even the status of Jaden Nixon. So I hope to see some Sessi because uh, I, I thought he looked really good in, in limited action. And the name alone, Sessi, I mean, there's so much <laughs> marketing potential there. I mean, you and I could make him a lot of money on some Feels Like 45 Sessi <laughs> shirts. Keep it Sessi. Oh, for sure. And it, as bringing Sessi perfect- back, are you kidding me? come on you perfectly segued into the next two notes i had on running back and Jaden nixon and elijah collins so coach dunn was asked after the game why nixon didn't play he said that's a boss man question Mm. he didn't robert allen's reporting he didn't practice all week and was not with the team in arlington coach gundy got asked about it in his bowl game zoom conference which was yesterday this is tuesday so that was on monday he said, when asked about Jaden Nixon coming back, he said, I think for the bowl game, I think so. He had a personal reason for not being there. His health is fine. We'd love to have him back and hopefully he's heading over here. I anticipate seeing him in the next three to four days. Then he and I can sit down and talk and he can be back at practice with us next week. Hmm. But he doesn't have an answer for sure at this time. I thought with Nixon not being there, kind of with like Ladarius Webb, who we'll talk about later in this pod, 
that that meant he was going to be in the transfer portal. That those guys didn't travel because they were both going to be in the transfer portal. And they said they didn't want to play in the bowl game. Not that Lardarius would play anyway. He was taking the red shirt and hasn't played much or played really at all this year. Now it's making me feel like I don't know 100% what's going yeah. on with Nixon. And we'll find out here probably in the next week. It makes me not want to speculate. I think the two quotes are strange. You know, that's a boss man question. And then the the line about we'll sit down and talk. Like I, I thought the exact same thing. Like I, I thought that maybe somebody caught wind that he was going to the portal and it was a, Hey, let's, let's cut this now. But I, I have no idea. And that line from Gundy makes me not want to speculate. You just never know. I do think he would have been useful in some of the two back sets. Not that Sessi did sure. a bad job. I thought Sessi was great, but I think it would have added a little bit more to that formation, especially if you could even rotate those guys in. And then with Collins, he's still dealing with the ankle sprain, but he he did go through walkthrough. He was suited up. You actually got a glimpse of him if you watch the game on TV. When Ollie was upset on the sideline, he's there with his shoulder pads on and full, fully dressed kind of talking to Ollie and they showed that on TV. So do know that he was fully dressed. Robert Allen said he practiced at the end of the week, kind of full go, but just didn't feel like he was a hundred, not a hundred percent, but just didn't feel like he was good enough to actually play in the game. But if Sessie would have gone down, it sounds like they would have used him. Yeah. I mean, I don't blame him with a with a really bum wheel. We don't know Ollie's health or what's been nagging him other than he's just taken a lot of hits this year. But you know Elijah Collins has had an ankle. We've talked about that on this podcast. I don't I don't blame the coaches. I don't blame him for not wanting to be in that situation. Um and I thought again, I thought Ceci that that game was not, you know, the offense was not uncompetitive because of the running back position. Just wasn't. Yeah. No, it wasn't. All right, moving on to wide receivers. Quick positive note before we get into some next things I think about the receivers. Dijon Stribling, cast is coming off. He's expected back for the bowl game. It will not impact his red shirt. That was my question. And he should be good to go for that game. Back at practice fully whenever they start back up. Coach Gunny's giving him off till next Monday, which I think is deserved with how hard these guys played and practiced towards the end of the season. So they get a full week off, but it sounds like he should be good to go for the bowl. Cade, after probably one of the better games from this wide receiver core as a unit, Rashad Owens and LJ3 really coming into form late in the season when asked to step in. I thought outside of Brennan Presley, who also I think didn't have one of his best games, I thought it was tough for these guys against the UT safeties and cornerbacks. Eight contested catch attempts PFF has. They caught one of them. Five missed tackles forced, but three were from BP and one was from Sessi. So Owens and LJ3 only combined for the other two. And to start, to start with LJ3, let's just start with him because he only had, if that's okay with you, four targets, two receptions, seven yards, the fumble, his average depth of throw was 7.8 yards. That's his shortest on the season. He wasn't able to get separation downfield. He wasn't able to get separation in the short passing game, as we've seen him do on hitches and slants and glance routes this season. He did have a nice catch late 
in the second quarter on a hitch that I thought Bowman threw a little wide, but then the next play play was the fumble and the snag concept. It was awesome to see him get the academic award. Shout out to him. We've loved watching him. I kind of backtracked some of my critiques of him because I thought he's improved and we gave him his flowers last episode. And Kate, I kind of want to take those flowers back after this game. <laughs> I don't know if you should take them back because of what Texas did to him. I, I, I wonder how much of this was a product of who he was going up against. Like he, this was by far the most talented secondary he's gone up against. The corners were great, but you look back at where his like run started. It was not even the UCF game. It was Houston and BYU really that he really started to play well. And for me, Dustin, it's like, I mean, that, is not shocking that he struggled against Texas and that, and that secondary, that group of cornerbacks. Um, I think some of his deficiencies were just put on, you know, full display, which is unfortunate, but that's what a team like that does. Yeah. And, and I completely joke about taking his flowers back. I, I've fallen I took in him love back from you him and gave him player. Back. <laughs> I've fallen in love with LJ three as a player. I think he's been awesome. I've loved what he's done, how he's committed to the team and burned that red shirt even though I know he really wanted another year with Rob Glass in the weight room and Cade, this is a perfect example of why I think Leon Johnson was correct in that assumption because this was a weight room game, I think, yep. for him on the outside. He got out physicaled by the cornerbacks of Texas. And even the plays where he was not throwing the ball, you know, I go back and watch. I try to watch every player. That's what takes me so long. That's why my wife hates me during football season. But he wasn't able to get separation on really any play. And even when Texas was dropping fully into quarters, if if there was a if there was a guy manned up on him, or even when they were dropping into zone, he was having trouble finding any space. And the fumble was really bad. The fumble was terrible. That ball was way too far away from his body. You're exactly right, too. The weight room game is a great way to put it. I think it's a good thing that he wasn't the only guy that I feel that way about. But it it, it just showed the lack of development, I think, that he's had at a Power 5 level. I, I think next year that game probably looks a little bit different for him. But if you don't fix the offensive line, if you don't shore that up in a game like this, I don't know. I don't know how much it matters. You know, when you talk about average depth of throw at 7.8, I think is the number you said. Yeah. Some of that feels like the offensive line to, to me. Like it's only four plays. It's a it's a small sample size. But like Bowman's, you know, freaked out. It just the whole thing was unfortunate for Leon Johnson. Yeah. Uh, Owens. Six targets, four receptions, 85 yards, two touchdowns. I do think he did a good job of trying to get open at times. <laughs> he blocked really well. The 34-yard catch was an incredible grab. But I thought he also had separation issues as well. For example, uh, first quarter, 14-41 left on the clock. Could have been a penalty. But even before the holding, he was striding, stride by stride with that cornerback. And this is in the preview, Cade, we talked about Leon and Rashad are going to have to get separation down the sideline because we knew Oklahoma State was going to try to throw it. And I just don't think there was any consistency no. there. I do, Rashad had a good, he did a good job of finding the space when Texas went to cover two on that side of the field and caught that pass. 
I thought he was smart against zone coverage, but was when he was pressed up on, I just don't, I don't think he really did a very good job of getting open, but that's not really his. No, it's not. It's not Leon's either. It's, uh, it's exactly what I was going to say is that is what we've seen most of this year. As those two have become the guys at receiver. That is what we saw. I mean, and, and maintained that. Yeah, they, they are talented can be physical. Rashad Owens is a very physical receiver. He's a great blocker, as we've mentioned several times. But as a down-the-field like threat, it's he's not going to blow the top off the defense. I mean, that throw from Bowman allowing Rashad Owens to go make a play like that, you know, that's a once-a-game type of play. That's not a sustainable offense. You can't run the, you know, Rudolph to Washington offense with a Rashad Owens out there. So, you know, I, I think by and large, you were limited this season because of the injuries you had at receiver. And it's not because of Rashad Owens it's not because of Leon Johnson, but it's because you didn't have guys like Dejon Stribling and Jaden Bray out there for an extended period of time. And they did what I thought they do. Dustin Jaden Bray used in, in limited capacity in this game. I think a lot of that has to do with the way Leon Johnson came on burning the red shirt. You just wonder what a healthy Jaden Bray looked like all season long. Uh, it may remain a great mystery. Yeah, it, it's a good point. And, you know, Dijon Stribling as well. They would have been, we talked about this already in the preview, but they would have been huge in this game. And just kind of going back to what we talked about with some of the scheme stuff in the RPO, I had Oklahoma State using play action or post snap RPO action on 34, 34% of their snaps. PFF has it at 29%. That's up from 30% last week. But, you know, it was a lot of the, they were trying to do some pick rub stuff early. Didn't really work. Trying to do some four vert stuff early. Didn't really work. The fade go connected on a couple of them, like you said, but it's not really sustainable. And then they go to snag shakes, double slants, and just the physicality of the corners. They weren't able to get open there. Mesh, they run mesh, and Bowman throws the deep ball to Owens, and that's the play that ends up getting picked off. But the mesh route underneath was covered. I just think, I think overall, and you know, they had the zone screen RPOs. We talked about the swing screen. Brendan Presley's out and up was great. The hitch zone beaters. But I think along with the two back formations to try to get that box a little bit lighter. I would have gone to the screen game even yeah. more, especially with Owens and LJ three out there. Now I'm not an offensive coordinator. I'm not saying I'm right. It probably, they probably still lose this game, but I think PFF has them throwing like nine screens. I would have thrown 19. You got to wonder like if they've seen enough in practice where it's like, yeah, LJ three and Owens in that type of, offense it's just not going to work it I don't I don't know because I agree with you it felt like even in the course of that game it's like man keep going to some of that it's it's really all you've got but it seems to be working enough and maybe if you do it enough much like Texas <laughs> just threw underneath all freaking day maybe at some point you force Texas hand I just feel like at that point the game's out of hand and the play calling suddenly becomes much like I don't know, much less situational, in my opinion. Yeah. It's like, what's going to work? I, I don't know. Well, to wrap the receivers up with Presley, 14 targets, nine receptions, 93 yards, and a touchdown. PFF has him with no drops. 
I didn't count these two as drops because I don't think either of them were great close. Close. But there was a glance route at the end of the... Well, actually, I did count. I do have one counted as a drop. There was a glance route in early in the game with the one you're talking about. Actually, that was more kind of like an in route. It was a pick-rub play. Bad throw from Bowman, and he kind of double-clutched it. You talked about this one earlier, but I thought Presley could have caught that one. There was a glance route late in the first quarter. I thought he could have caught that one. Again, it wasn't a great throw, but I thought he could have caught it. And in the snag route late in the third quarter, this is the one I do have as a drop. I I think Texas thought they were maybe going to get a fumble call from it. He catches it. I know Bowman doesn't put him in a good spot there. He's going to get hit. But you got to hold on to that ball. Yeah. Even even as a small guy, you got to catch that. He got blown up. I would have crumbled into little pieces. But Brendan Presley has held on to the ball from harder hits than that. Yeah, there's no question. He all season, really, he's taken big hits. I, you know, Presley was like the only offense they had. It felt like it was, uh, you know, it's disappointing to see that play, but it's tough for me to focus in on it when it's like, if they don't have Brennan Presley out there, what, what does that day look like? Oh, offensively? yeah. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying. Even, even he struggled a little bit. And that's right. how you can kind of tell this offense, you know, he had the false start. Which you know I think was a product of the mo- the shift in motion on that play as more of it was his fault in the snap. He did draw the DPI. He had a sm- spin move at the end of the first quarter that I thought was awesome. The out and up route was beautiful, and Bowman underthrows him. He still catches it because he made a great play to come back to the ball. But when they pressed up on Presley in the slot, even he had some issues winning yeah. those routes. It was just I think it was just a shock at how physical these DBs were when they've played against Cincinnati, BYU, Houston, you know, some of the teams that you mentioned, I just think it was almost a system shock to their bodies to That's, have these guys up on them like that and with their hands on them and the refs letting them play. I just don't know how ready for a championship this roster was. I, it's just like there were holes kind of all over the place and it's a coaching, you know, masterpiece to get them to nine wins because you go up against a program like that. It's like, Whoa. I mean, that, at, all over the field, you're you're overmatched. And even at receiver to cornerback, like I felt like Texas won that battle. So, yeah. Uh, but just real quick on tight ends and fullbacks before we get to Bowman. So, Josiah Johnson, 38 snaps live. I didn't even notice him out there. Zero <laughs> targets. He ran a route, according to PFF, on 85% of his passing snaps. Going back and rewatching, I thought he had some good pulls. He still gave really good effort. I thought he had some bad ones. But I think, you know, overall, the offensive line didn't block the counter plays very well. The double tight end counter that they ran once didn't work. They ran dart with Cooper. It didn't work. And then GH counter wasn't working. So I, I just think they kind of went away from it almost and started mixing in some zone runs. But... It's his second lowest graded game, or third, sorry, third lowest graded game. BYU and Central Arkansas, he was graded worse on offense. I, I didn't think it was his fault, but I, I know you, you mentioned in the preview, we thought he was going to be much more involved in this game. I know Ian Boyd thought he was going to be much more involved in this game. It was weird that he wasn't, and it, I'm not saying that's his fault completely, but it was almost like you didn't even notice him out there well, until you rewatched the game, or that's how it felt from my perspective. No, for me, I, 
I was kind of frustrated. I think there was a play in the, I think it was in the fourth quarter, maybe late third quarter where they ran Cassidy up the seam. And it's like, they haven't done that with Josiah Johnson. It feels like all season, like on a, which I counted as a drop by the way, which it was for sure. They got lucky that they didn't call it a fumble. Um, But for Johnson, it's like, I don't feel like they used him in that way this season. They used him as a receiver, mostly a blocker, but I don't feel like they ever used misdirection to free him open. And that, that will remain kind of frustrating for me is I don't feel like maybe this, this staff was, (laughs) maybe that's exactly what they intended. But for me, it's like, you've got him out there. You know, can you can you use him like a Jatavian Sanders bad quest, bad comparison? Those guys are different levels of athleticism. But you saw the way they used Jatavian Sanders all day. I mean, it's yeah. it's night and day in terms of what they want to do with the tight end. And so uh, I didn't notice him either. I don't know how much of that is his fault, though. Yeah, and they were motioning him a lot. A using that escort motion to try to spring some of those run plays. But then in the passing game, it was almost like, he was either in max protecting or they were right. kind of using him as a decoy. So right. it was, it was a little weird. He's had a great season. He's been one of my favorite players. So it was tough to kind of see that. And then Cassidy, I, I only had him with 13 snaps. So besides the drop, I thought he struggled on a couple of the pulls I saw. I didn't really have a lot of notes on him, but Alan Bowman, Cade, another weird game, 20, 22 completions, 30 attempts, 250 yards, three touchdowns. You know, he completes 22 passes, 250 yards, three touchdowns. He has the interception, which was a bad throw. Bad call, 58 too. completion percentage, which is not great. Then you go look at his season stats. He surpassed 3,000 passing yards on the season, becoming the first Cowboy to do so since Taylor Cornelius in 2018. <laughs> and it was a season high for him in three passing touchdowns in a game. I had him, you know, if you go back and look, the pick might have been his only like true turnover-worthy play. He had a couple of others that you could have probably classified as that. He threw it away twice. But then you look at his adjusted completion percentage, and I, this is where I think the story is. Normally, Bowman's adjusted completion percentage is way higher than his actual, except for some of the games where he's had a pretty high completion percentage. But it's something we talked about earlier in the season. And we talked, you know, if if he would have had more reps those first three games, maybe that would have been a you know tighter window between actual and adjusted. Well, in this game, it's 61.1%. And I think he was very inaccurate in this game. I do think some of that was due to the pressure. I do think some of that was due to his receivers not being able to get open and the way Texas was playing the RPOs and him trying to force it in. But overall, accuracy-wise, this may have been one of his poorest throwing games. It felt like it. I it's it's tough to pinpoint the why for me. I mean, he was he was under pressure m- more than he has been most of this season. It, besides the Iowa State game, this is his most. This is his highest pressure rate according to PFF. And I, you know, I don't track every single pressure from Bowman, but it felt that stat feels right based on watching these games. So I'll you, throw it back to you. I just want no, to mention if you that. Go, no, thank you for that. You, you validated what I was thinking with that Iowa state game though. You remember how we talked about his accuracy issues as like, Oh no, this is, this is going to be a thing. And then most of the season, 
it ended up being mostly serviceable. And then when pressure comes against Texas, all of a sudden it shows back up again. I think you would put, not speaking for you, but if you had to stack rank his best and worst games, I think Iowa State's in that top three worst games of his season. So he's got to have a clean pocket. And even when he does, he'll fall back on his back foot. So he absolutely comes with limitations. But for me, like I, he didn't, that, I'm not even sure that ball was intercepted. He makes some questionable decisions. Yeah. That is just like as a sixth year senior, it's like you can't obviously do that. You'd rather take the sack and felt like he got worse at that as the season went on, which is very strange. But again, I'll just kind of hang hang my hat on this as we you know continue to wrap up the offense. I can't hang it on one guy. I, I really can't. I, I feel like that they were out athleted at really every position and your quarterback is going to suffer. So for him having a fairly average game, I thought that's, you know, that's okay. It was never going to be good enough to win though. Yeah. And he was asked to do a lot in this game. And we've talked about, that's not really his specialty being, being asked to be the offense. Whereas, you know, we talk, we compare him to Spencer Sanders a lot this season and, and normally to praise Bowman, but Spencer Sanders at times, because of his legs, you could ask him to do it all, and he was able to in some games. I'm not saying he would have been able to in this game, but because Bowman's not a runner, he's being asked to do a lot in this game, and Texas' defense played really well. Just overall not great for him in terms of him having a good game. I mentioned the pressure rate. It looks like PFF revised that to 27%, which I still believe is the highest since the Iowa State game. He was blitzed on 22% of his dropbacks, attempted seven passes, 20 yards downfield, completed three of them. That's the most attempts down that far downfield since the Cincinnati game where he had eight. I did think he made a few good throws scrambling. The sack scramble for negative yards confused me. I really think he didn't know where the line was because why not just think you're right. throw that out of bounds and not lose two yards? Because now Texas gets credited for a sack in the offensive <laughs> Which line. Which they didn't have. have. Yeah, yeah. I, I would agree with but, you. But yeah, I mean, they did get pressure on him on that play. But the, the fade ball to Leon was bad. I think if you get that up, that's where Leon could have maybe got his catch and maybe we're giving him his flowers again. Did you have that as, a, a, as a turnover-worthy play? Because that was a bad throw. I didn't I didn't count that one, but I it could have. That's what I'm saying. There were several that could have been yeah. counted. There, The thing was, Kate, some of these throws were so off that I couldn't count them because the defender would have had to make a miraculous catch yeah, as well. And that's right. not really a shot at Bowman. The overthrow to Bray was bad. The underthrow to Presley, even though he still caught it, was bad. Kate, does it look like, and we can end it here with Alan Bowman when I ask you this question, unless you have anything else, but does it look like his arm is getting tired? Was getting tired? Like, did he look like he had a tired arm in this game? I don't think any of those throws downfield had any kind of zip on them at all. The the throw to Brennan Presley, which is something, the touchdown throw, Brennan said they saw that on film and knew Texas wasn't going to be able to cover that hole in that zone coverage in the red zone. That was a dart. Oh, yeah. But outside of that, it looked like he maybe didn't have as much juice as he did several games ago. And that would be kind of a, dr a drastic decline. I'm not talking about like way earlier in the season. And I'm not saying he's injured. It just, the ball some took floppy balls in this game. The floppy. ball took a while. And even on, 
I think it was his second touchdown to Rashad Owens. That ball was up there for quite a while. Not really the type of throw you would expect to be caught for a touchdown on that route, which was a crossing, like it was a coming across the middle of the field route. You really it was a shallow concept. Yeah. You think that that's coming in hot and it was not. So I could see what you were saying. I actually was going to think like, I thought he looked tired. Like, I don't know if it was like the scrambling or what, but I actually thought like you could catch him multiple times in the kind of replays and in the pre-snap stuff, like seeming like he was trying to catch his breath. So there may be something to what you're saying. Yeah. We want to say a quick thank you to sponsor the Feels Like 45 podcast, Classic Overland. Classic Overland specializes in restoring original Land Rover Defenders designed with your unique style and specifications. They go to great lengths to find quality vintage Defenders before they begin the restoration process, and their team of experts will guide you through the various exterior and interior options to create the perfect build. Our friends Luke Reed and Robert Dennis of Classic Overland are both Oklahoma State graduates and will work with you through the process to ensure you have a great experience. And in addition, if you purchase a Classic Overland Defender and mention this podcast, the Feels Like 45 podcast, their team will donate a portion of the proceeds to the Pokes with a Purpose NIL Collective. To learn more, you can visit their website, classicoverland.com, and you can contact Luke and Robert at robert at classicoverland.com. Thank you. Go Pokes. Okay, that's all I have on the offense. It was a, a tough game overall. But yeah, I let's talk about the defense who it's not gonna be fun as either. Maybe shorter. So, it may be shorter because this was bad. Six hundred and sixty two yards of total offense. Yeah. And if you want to know how it happened, they threw it a bunch underneath. <laughs> yeah. So Coach Gundy talked about they needed to do some things in man coverage to try and get some guys into the box. They did a little bit more man early than they've done previously. And then I think they actually kind of switched to zone a little bit more as the game went on, kind of mixing back and forth. Coach Gunny, you know, he kind of laid it out perfectly. Didn't get as much pressure as we needed to, even when we rushed four, five, six. They did a good job of getting the ball into the hands of their skill guys. And when they got up multiple scores, Sark was able to dial things up that he probably wouldn't have in a close game. And we talked about it a lot, Cade. When the offense is executing well, and we think Sark is a great offensive mind, but any offensive coordinator, if the offense is executing the initial plays you're calling well, then that makes your life so easy as an offensive coordinator because then it's like, man, I can call whatever I want now because they've been executing stuff perfectly. I'll just call whatever and see if they can do it. Yeah, he is a great play caller. I thought that the early success, much to like what you, what you're saying here, the early success and that play to worthy that ended up going, I think, for much more yardage than they had anticipated. It was down the sideline. He cuts it back in, gets like a 50 yard gain. I think that that like may have calmed some of those nerves because that was an off schedule one. They had just scored on the Jatavian Sanders, like little rollout. They, 
they seemed to get more confident with play calling as the game went on. And I, I even felt fooled by some of the misdirection. There were multiple times where I felt like Oklahoma state had it. And then only to find out that there's somebody leaking somewhere that you didn't see. And so I'm not saying that that's an excuse. I miss a lot, but it was, it was easy to tell. They they were getting creative with some of the misdirection. Oh, definitely. It, Coach Nardo said after the game, he wanted to not give up big plays down the middle, which is somewhere we thought that they could get hurt, especially with Jatavian Sanders, and make them take checkdowns. But he said they took them, and they threw way more screens than he anticipated. They threw screens against the Blitz so well. They read Colin, Colin Oliver. They schemed specific Oklahoma State players up in this game. I thought they did it to Nick. I thought they did it to Colin Oliver. And I thought they did it to Kendall Daniels. And what they were doing to Oliver was if he was the pass rusher in even front, they were reading him and throwing some screens and other kind of quick flat throws off of him, like making him the conflict player. And then when he was in the linebacker spot, they were also kind of trying to put him and Nick in in conflict with some shallow crossers and some more of that quick stuff out to the flats. I just thought it it was something we we didn't know if they would for sure do, but I'd mentioned this in several previews before that teams outside of it because they can't really attack the cornerbacks with Corey Black out there and Corey leaves the game early. You could attack the safeties or you can try to put the linebackers in conflict. And Texas did a great job of both of those in this game. They bunched up a lot and did some pick stuff. They would put Sanders and Gunnar Helm both split out wide and throw a wide receiver screen. And both those guys are amazing blockers in space. They did a great job of protect, protecting Quinn years. I thought Oklahoma State's pass rush, as, as I mentioned, Gundy said, post game was pretty terrible. And Sark even said himself, that he felt so comfortable calling plays in that game. It allowed him to get to things in the playbook. He wasn't sure if he'd be able to get to. Yeah. I mean, if I think back to the conversation you and I had last week about the things that Oklahoma state could not do, we've already talked about what that was offensively, but defensively, you couldn't let Quinn Ewers, you know, balance his checkbook in the pocket. And he was able to do that. They could not get pressure on him. I thought the linebackers, as you said, if you go back and watch and you watch the lack of action at times in response to the Texas motion, you could just tell that they were not on the same page, whether it's, you know, Xavier Benson with Dylan Smith or Colin Oliver with Cameron Epps. You could tell that there was there was some confusion on how to handle those and Oklahoma State never really figured that out. And I also think that's in a little bit of it is they, they got out athleted on the perimeter as well. Like even if you figure that out and your approaches, as you said, to not get beat over the top, the adjustments you can make to that are very few. Like you can't just shade Benson and Oliver out wider. Cause you're going to get gashed up the middle because you already really are. There's not a lot you can do to that unless you want to start giving up deep throws. So I thought that the defensive game plan was frustrating but it's better than getting bombs away on, but Texas just executed flawlessly all game. Yeah. I, I mean, I honestly think you could have even back the box more and just let them have the deep, like the deep shots because you get the ball back. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I may agree the way that. that they were attacking the perimeter 
and attacking the screen game and with the checkdowns, it's like, man, that is not what you want to happen. And I know if you bring guys down and stop that stuff, you're going to give up the deep shot. But to your point, it was almost like, what are you going to do? And then Quinn Ewers, who I think both of us think is not a Heisman caliber QB, but in big games, his three best games this year statistically are Alabama, OU, yeah, and this game. He, he was, was awesome. 12 for 12 for 175 yards and three touchdowns to start the game. Yeah, he was literally perfect. They weren't asking him to do a whole lot, though. Like, it was really mostly scheme, in my opinion. And it's not even a knock on Quinn. Like, he manages that really well. But it's not like Quinn's arm won them that game. Yeah, and then Sanders, we've mentioned, played well. Jordan Whittington, they got him matched up on Kendall Daniels three or four times, and he exploited that matchup, I think, Almost every single time he got it. Yep. Mitchell and Worthy were good. Texas was going fast using tempo. I don't think that helped. And when they did slow down, like you mentioned, they used a lot of motion. They were 12 of 18 on money downs. So third and fourth downs, two of two on fourth down. Third down and one to four yards to gain, they were three for three. Oh, That's yeah. just... Yeah. They doubled up Oklahoma State in time of possession, 40 minutes to 20. 19 minutes and 54 seconds 10 different texas players caught a ball seven caught at least two and worthy sanders and mitchell's when it combined 20 catches for 300 yards and two touchdowns the longhorn running backs we've talked about these checkdowns those out to the flats caught nine passes for 91 yards and a touchdown and the other thing i noticed kate this is the third most snaps all season for gunner helm ton of 12 personnel and they not only were they throwing it to Sanders and Helm, which I mean, Helm only had one catch, but they they were using these guys, as I've talked about, as blockers on the perimeter to attack the safeties and Xavier Benson. And it was springing these running lanes when they were running these counter runs, especially into the boundary, which we saw OU have success with against Oklahoma State. They ran a buck sweep into the boundary that busted for a huge gain. It was just, they were exploiting all the things that Oklahoma State has struggled with this season. Yeah, I mean, that's the way I felt about it. It was tough. I mean, they couldn't get pressure, struggled to defend in the flat. You know, you didn't get beat over the top, but you might as well have with the amount of yardage you gave up underneath. So it's a tough one. That They were really good. It do some interesting stuff in this game. When Worthy was lined up in the slot at times, they would rotate the other cornerback to play over him. And so at times, if Texas went four wide, they would have two safeties lined up over two receivers to one side and two cornerbacks lined up over two receivers to the other side. They also did some three cornerbacks on the field at the same time, took a D lineman off and moved Oliver up to the D line. BFF has OSU blitzing yours on 40% of his dropbacks. Only got one sack. I had 10 pressures with five or more pass rushers and they got exploited on a lot of those. BFF has yours throwing 12 screens. I counted 11 different screen variations with the first team offense. I had the first team offense at 77 of their 87 total plays. Those screens averaged 13 yards per play and only one of them went for less than four yards. So they were gaining 13 yards average. And even if you take off the huge ones, which I think the longest was 54 yards, they were still gaining at least four yards every single time. 
and I had 19 screens, checkdowns, or throws to the flats to the running back or the tight end for 223 yards. That's 11.7 yards per play. That's brutal. I mean, it's what I felt like in the stadium. But uh, when you when you quantify it in that regard, Destin, I mean, they they got pretty much everything they wanted except going down the field over Oklahoma State's head. That's about it. Yeah, and like I mentioned, they were doing counter, pin and pull. They've been zone heavy earlier in the season, and they were very heavy gap in this game. The the blocking on the screens, I had, you know, it, it was it was tough. I, I don't know. I almost think just rushing three and dropping eight might have been, <laughs> might have uh, been better too because that's, that's what Iowa point. State had success with against Texas because when they – yours has self-sacked himself a lot this season. Yep. And in this game when they brought pressure, they just screened and checked down and threw to the flats on it. Before we get to the D-line, Cade, just real quick, PFF snap counts. Corey Black's fewest snaps all season. He left after four snaps with an injury. It looked like to me the very first play of the game, he took a knee to the head from I think I think it was one of the wanting the running backs. Took a knee to the head. He continued to play, actually gave up a touchdown pass. And then it looked he looked completely oh, yeah. out of sorts yeah, on the you, sideline. And I the only play it could have been on was the knee to the head on that first play. Well, that's why I was so confused when he didn't come back. My brother in the stadium, you missed some of this, but he texted me and said, Corey Black's out, not coming back. You could have missed that he even played in that game because it's like, when would he have gotten hit? But if you yeah. go back and look at it, Dustin, he was definitely out of sorts. It's a good thing they got him out of that when they did. Most snaps for McKinney and Kale Smith this year, which makes sense with Corey leaving the game early. Second most snaps all season for Deshaun Brown, and he was also the highest PFF graded player that played more than 20 snaps. And then it's also the most snaps for Colin Clay since the WVU game. So he kind of shared the load with Justin Kirkland in this game. I know we'll get into him, but I, I thought Deshaun Brown looked good at times. Yeah, I'm yeah. excited for him in the future. All right, Kate, let's get into the defensive line. Again, we probably will go kind of quick through these position groups because 662 total yards of offense <laughs> is tough. But the thing, the defensive line, I think overall wasn't great, specifically talking about the defensive ends as a unit. They didn't get any pressure, but Texas offensive line is really good. And I talked about earlier, maybe you just rush three and drop eight. If they would have done that, they would have gotten no pressure because it would have been three versus five or six when Texas does their max protect. But I thought, you know, he had three tackles in this game good low had some good pass rush snaps he got blown off the ball at times in the run game but i did think he had a couple of nice tackles a couple early in the third quarter as well yeah walter Scheid had the tackle for loss he got blown off the ball as well but then you know second play of the game he had a he had a nice tackle the tackle for loss came with 750 left in the second quarter and then nathan latou who apparently almost didn't play because it, his ankle was so hurt has some awesome pass rush snaps, gets the sack, has five PFF hurries, which is the most in a game all season. But then he gets the run. I think he made like one play, and then other than that, he got kind of destroyed off the line. So it was, it was just really, it was a weird game because I thought sometimes they had good snaps, but when you give up five yards of carry, and 662 yards total on offense, you can't say that they played well. Yeah, and I mean, 
what we said they could not do, which was, again, give Quinn Ewers a ton of time, is the thing that happened. You know, like Latou, I thought on that sack, that was an outstanding individual play. It got me out of my seat for sure. But for me, Dustin, it's like, you know, even if they were decent against the run, which I don't think they were even that, they were pretty bad against the run. They were really bad at getting pressure. So to me, it's like you can look at some of the individual plays that happened throughout the game. But as a unit, it was what you said they could not do. And that's what happened. I did like with Latou in their even front looks. He was lined up in that three tech outside shoulder of the guard. And then Brown would be the five tech outside shoulder of the tackle. And when it was on DJ Campbell, who I think is a good offensive lineman, Latou worked him multiple mm-hmm. times. He he had a QB hit. He had the sack. He had a couple, like I said, five PFF pressures. He had the late hurry, late second quarter hurry that brought up a third and nine. And then we talked about Brown. I thought he played really well. Two PFF hurries. He had a nice tackle on a late third quarter run. Johnson had 16 snaps. He had one PFF hurry. I didn't have a ton of notes on him. And then Xavier Ross, most of my notes on him weren't great. He didn't really make any plays, and he was just like the other guys where he was getting blown off the ball. I do think, though, where the defensive line maybe played pretty well was the nose tackle spot going up against Texas's center, Jake Majors. Kirkland had five tackles in this game. Most all season, he had a hurry. He had a great tackle on a second and nine with the U.S. scrambling to tackle him and bring up a third and six. That's just... You don't see many nose tackles make a play like that. He had a nice tackle at the end of the third quarter when Murphy came in at QB for the one play. Two nice fourth quarter tackles. One of them was against the backups, but still good. Clay, he struggled getting blown backwards at times, but he never quit. He he ran down Sanders on a screen like 20 yards downfield late in the second quarter. I think if there was one bright spot on this defense outside of Nick Martin making some plays... I think Justin Kirkland was probably the other guy that yeah. had as much as you could call it a good game. It's going to be really interesting not to fast forward into the off season here, but like, I think you get, you can get good low back. Am I wrong on that? Or is he, is he done? He's done to my knowledge. Okay. That was his so, last year of eligibility. The only reason I started with him is because I think defensive line, as much as I mentioned, offensive line, you got to get a pass rusher that is on your D line. Yeah, because Latou is out of eligibility. Not as activating well. a Colin Oliver in that situation. Like you need to go get some guys that can get downhill. That's going to be a huge one for me in this offseason. Is can you go get a guy that you can consistently rely on to fit the run and additionally create pressure on the quarterback just with your third your three down set that's what iowa state did for so long can't imagine that they run back a unit like this that has struggled for most of the year yeah i think it's a good call and and if you are going to i think you gotta see what you have in brown and johnson getting them a bulk of the snaps they're more, I think, pass rush guys. So you may, especially with Brown, you may lose a little bit in terms of the run game. So we'll just kind of have to see. But I agree with you. I think defensive end is probably where I would look in the portal to kind of sure things up. Not only because you're losing good low and Latou, but because, like you said, overall in the season, I would probably call them average 
Well, if you think back to like the year Colin Oliver popped and Trace Ford before that and Emmanuel Ogba and there were other guys in between that, you could see it early. I think Oklahoma State has good depth pieces, but they they are missing that, you know, edge rusher. They don't have that right now. Yeah, yeah, oh, you're right. You're right on that. Moving to the linebackers. Cade, this was a game where I think linebackers and safeties, you saw the athleticism of the UT running backs and tight ends and receivers catching the ball in the flats and just getting away from these guys. There was no catch-up speed from the linebackers and safeties, and it's not really their fault. These Texas skill talent guys are incredibly dynamic freak athletes, but that was Sark's game plan, attacking the linebackers and attacking Kendall Daniels, and it worked out perfectly for them. Nick still finished with 13 tackles and that interception was awesome. My favorite part about the interception was his ability to cover up the ball when he knew a guy was going to swat it out from behind. I think it might've been worthy that yeah. was trying to swat it out from behind. I thought that was just great awareness by him. It's his sixth game of the season with at least 10 tackles and one shy, one tackle shy of breaking into the top 10 in single season tackles in program history at one thirty three. And they talked to him after the game, and he said, "What what we saw on film is what they did. They just executed perfectly." And he had a I I don't know if you noticed, but he had an ice pack on his cheek. He said that that's been happening to him after games, and he doesn't know why. Nick, it's because you're hitting people so hard that your cheeks are <laughs> swelling up after the game. Whoa. That's why. I mean, that's I, crazy. I'm not a doctor, but that's 100 why. That's the coolest just, thing I've ever heard, actually. Like we did with Ollie Cade, I just want to spend a second to just kind of give him his flowers on the season. Coach Nardo talked about him missing one practice all year, and he's been dealing with a high ankle sprain for most of the season, which is an injury that puts people out for a long time. It's I think it's what happened to Trevor Lawrence last night if you watched that Monday Night Football yep. game, and it, that looked gruesome. So that's the kind of injury he's dealing with. He had one PFF hurry. He had the interception. There were, you know, there was a second and 10 split zone run where he just destroyed Baxter for no gain. He had a great perimeter tackle late in the second quarter. He couldn't get out on blue fast enough on one of the touchdowns, but that's what I'm talking about. They were kind of coming after them there. In the second quarter, though, he had like five or six amazing tackles. And then he had one of his patented missile tackles against yeah. the backups on UT's final drive. He never lacked effort in this game. Because the defensive ends were getting kind of blown off the ball, UT's offensive linemen were able to just release freely up to him. And he wasn't able to really get off those blocks more often than not. But all that said, he tried his best in this game. I still don't think it was a bad game from him. He had 13 tackles, and he was amazing this season. I, I love it. I think the Nick Martin experience for me this season was summed up in two plays. One was the screaming tackle that you mentioned. I may add an honorable mention to round it out into three plays. The second was the interception to jump up and secure the ball and make the play, which so many guys, when that ball comes their way, they freak out. They, they, they can't catch it. They don't know what to do with it. Nick Martin makes the play. And I think this one flew under the radar for a lot of people. It, I've already mentioned this play in this game. It's early. 
Xavier Worthy catches the ball on the sideline, runs up the sideline, cuts it back to the middle, and by all accounts, he's gone. And Nick Martin catches him from behind. Your middle linebacker catches Xavier Worthy from behind. I didn't even know anybody could catch him from behind, let alone your middle linebacker. So Nick Martin, I mean, much like Ollie Gordon, you don't get there without him. You don't get there without a Nick Martin this season. And I think he made Colin Oliver and Xavier Benson's job, two guys that are older than him, I think he made their job much easier and they benefited from having him out there. Yeah, and I think he's you know one of the captains of the defense, not only in just leadership in the locker room, but on the field calling things out. So yeah, I, I think that play of him tra- tracking down Worthy is a great call out. Benson, you know, he had four tackles. He had a half tackle for loss, one PFF hurry. I thought he had some whiffs, but you could tell, Cade. Man. I think he left the game twice with injury. He was banged up. I don't know if he was banged up coming into the game, but if he wasn't, then Kelvin Banks on that GT counter early in the second quarter banged him up because he got absolutely destroyed. He got destroyed a little bit later. Coach Gundy talked about him sacrificing his body. I think this is a game where he continued to sacrifice his body, but got destroyed multiple times. And I, I stopped kind of tracking notes on him because I it looked like he was hurt. Yeah, I think he was, and he did not have a great game. I, I it, whether he was hurt coming in, I don't think it. You know. really affected his play in the game in the plays that I saw, but you're right. Late in that game, he was worn down. There's no question. And he was unable to get away from those linemen pulling on buck buck sweep or any of that pin and pull stuff. He was just getting absolutely destroyed. And then Jatavian's, you know, we saw him absolutely dominate Austin Stogner in the OU game, but against Jatavian Sanders and Gunnar Helm, he was having no such luck. And it's, not shocking. I don't know if Stogner's really that guy, pal. I think those two guys are those 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 guys, pal. And uh, I just felt like Benson in this game. I don't know if like Sark circled him in the game plan, but it felt like every time he looked up, number one was around the the big play. And it's not it's not. I'm not saying it's Benson's fault. I'm just saying they picked on him in the run, in the short pass, in the middle pass, in their trick plays. It was a tough game for Benson. Yeah. Ending with Oliver, we've already talked about him a little bit. Three tackles, one tackle for loss, which came in the fourth quarter. PFF has him with four PFF hurries, but just watching that game and going back through my notes, I thought he wasn't able to get a consistent pass rush against Banks and Christian Jones, which those are two really good tackles. Yeah, I don't know if anybody has. But when they're when they're using him as the conflict guy, he missed a couple tackles. There was a yep. missed tackle on Baxter's second TD run or Baxter's TD run in the second quarter. All that kind of encapsulating into it was just kind of a tough game for him. And then he has to leave late in concussion protocol. Just not not the best game for Oliver, but I think he was one of the guys Sark was coming after. I think so too. He. I you said he missed a couple tackles. He also had a really good shot at a sack on that uh you know Philly special type play, whatever they you would call that, where Jatavian Sanders scored in the first quarter. He had a good shot at at Quinn Ewers and just kind of 
stumbled his way into it and and they ended up scoring. So not the best game from Oliver. Yeah, tough game overall from the linebackers, but they were they were asked to do a lot, not getting a ton of help from the defensive line. In the defensive backfield, Cam Smith, you know, you you look at his stats. Let's start with the cornerbacks. Eight tackles, two tackles for loss. BFS has nine targets at him and eight receptions. He again almost had an interception right after Bowman's interception. Just like he did a couple of games ago. Oh my God. And he wasn't able to get it. He got beat on a third and 10 double move early in the second quarter. He had a nice tackle for loss on the screen to Mitchell. That was the only negative play. That was a screen that I had charted. He had a tackle for loss on Baxter in the late third quarter. But guarding Mitchell in man, he was struggling. Mitchell was winning that battle more often than not. Tough battle. But no question yeah. about it. I mean, that that was a mismatch. And it was one I was actually more worried about. I felt like if you could put... I Honestly, I don't know. I mean, they had Corey Black on Mitchell maybe thinking that Cam Smith or McKinney could have handled Worthy on their own, which is actually a pretty good approach. Once Corey Black goes out, this is, this is a totally different ballgame. Yeah, and speaking of Corey, I'm not even going to hold that touchdown against him because he was visibly concussed two plays before that if you watch the play go like i know you did but to our listeners go back and watch the play and watch Corey. like it's he he should not have been out there right then it it, it was not a play you would have expected an all-conference corner to make and then mckinney and smith they both had seven tackles which kind of tells you that they got quite a few passes completed on them you know mckinney got beat by sanders early in the fourth quarter which is a tough matchup because he's such a physical receiver. Kale Smith had the missed tackle on Worthy early after good coverage on him on a year's scramble, and then he let him go, and then he got beat on the double move by Worthy, but he recovered, and then yours made a bad throw, and he actually almost picked it off. So I didn't. It wasn't a terrible game from these guys, but you know, yours threw it forty six times, and a, a lot of them were into the flat, and they were having to make the tackle after the catch was already completed. They just didn't make it hard on him. That that was the thing that was disappointing is I think Quinn Ewers, when I, when I thought about this game, Texas would have won it 10 times out of 10 if that was the game plan because Quinn Ewers can run that offense. It's just that easy. Yeah, and then wrapping up with the safeties, I thought they played a little timid against the run. I honestly would have, again, I'm, I'm no coordinator by any means, but I would have maybe, I th- I've said like nine different game plans now, so I don't know which one. But maybe you just have them trigger against the run, like mm. I was saying at the beginning, and give up the deep shot and just take away the flat throws, the screen throws, and the run game and live with the deep balls. Now, maybe they would have adjusted to that if Corey wouldn't have gone out. But it's just, the, I'm flip-flopping back and forth on how I would have tried to attack Texas because they executed so well. But I do think that the safeties were playing pretty timid against the run. And I don't think that helped anything. Well, if you go back and listen to the broadcast, they mentioned multiple times that Brian Nardo's got to fix that, you know, that that pass underneath. And my first question is, how? Like, if you do that, you open up your deep ball. You you give your young corners nothing. Like it is you and only you. And maybe, maybe you should have tried that, but I don't fault Brian Nardo's approach at all. One thing I'll say, Dustin, I well, I, I know we're on the safeties. 
this is a Kendall Daniels, Colin Oliver kind of comment. We can start with Daniels if you okay. want to, because we haven't picked a safety yet to start with. So. Okay, thank Okay. I felt like Oklahoma State's tweeners, which are Kendall Daniels and Colin Oliver, like were major tweeners in this game. Like Kendall Daniels was too slow in coverage. Colin Oliver not physical enough to to get much of a pass rush to fit the run. I felt like it was just most evident with Kendall Daniels in this game. This was a tough one. Yeah, it really was. And Nardo mentioned that he's another guy who has played through an ankle sprain, just like Nick Martin. We've talked about that on a previous pod. Eight tackles in this game. PFS has a PFF has 11 targets at him and nine receptions. I talked about Whittington beating him in man coverage, which is a tough task to ask Kendall Daniels to stay with him. Another play, Kate, I told you they were going to run it. They ran it, I think, twice. Sanders releasing to the flat when he knew Daniels was on him in man coverage. Yep. And Daniels, not only does there. he have a long way to get there, but Sanders has the speed to make him miss in space. And that was, I'm honestly surprised they didn't throw that play like 20, which I think maybe is why Oklahoma State started backing off their man coverage a little bit in the second half. Because that play by itself, they could have just ran that over and over and over oh, again. Oh, man. Yeah, it, w- it was really tough because Kendall Daniels, not just covering the flat, but covering those crossers, when they put him in those situations, I mean, it it was really tough. I felt like I could see number five running away from me the entire game. It was, it was a tough he, one. He lost confidence. To me, it looked like he lost confidence in his decision-making, mm. pass run, where to trigger at. Once he started getting beat in the pass game, and then he was just so off. He still had a couple good plays against the run. I know Texas's second drive, he had a really nice play against the run. But overall, this was another game where it's like, man, that was a tough game for Kendall Daniels. And Kate, listening to Tom Dorado and Robert Allen today, normally when they're on together, they argue. And it's it's good radio. I, I like listening to, to them kind of go at it because it's normally kind of funny. But Tom Dorado said he does not think Kendall Daniels can continue to play the rover spot. And Robert Allen completely agreed with him. And I listen to that radio show pretty often. I can tell you that for Robert Allen to not only agree with Tom, but agree that a player should not be playing the position that they're currently at is very rare for Robert Allen to do. So I just wanted to mention that on this podcast because it just it, it shocked me when I heard them both say that. I said a similar thing, but it was not on air. It was actually in my dad's car on the way back from the game. And it was that Kendall Daniels, you know, when he was recruited to Texas A&M and he didn't want to play linebacker, that's the rumor at least, wanted to play safety. I think you saw in this game why some thought he was a linebacker and some thought he was a safety. I mean, this is... He's big enough in the run to really make an impact, but in the past game and the amount of focus that this defense has on that Rover spot in the past game, this is, this may not be the position for him. Like I, I, I am to the point where I agree with that sentiment. Um, even more so than a Colin Oliver, you know, linebacker DN, what fits this doesn't after 13 games seem like a fit. Yeah. And I think the other problem is Rucker and Daniels are more of your run fit type safeties as opposed to coverage guys. 
And then I think Smith and Epps both have the skill set to cover, but they're so young. So you've got two safeties out there who are more run stoppers. And then your other safety out there who has the skill set to cover, they're both brand new young guys. So you basically have no one out there that can cover. Mm. And I'm wondering, I was talking a little bit about this to our guy, Adam Lunt at the game. And after the game, I'm wondering if they maybe move a more veteran cornerback, especially if Corey Black were to come back to one of those safety spots just to give you, because all the corners have shown they can play the run pretty well. Yeah, I I know they've had trouble at times getting off blocks, but when when they're asked to play the run, especially guys like Cam Smith who are very physical, maybe you move one of those guys to the safety spots because you can't have all three of them be average to below average in coverage. And again, that Cam Epps with another year maybe is that guy too. But if you're going to take Kendall Daniels off, maybe you put a more twitchy guy back there and it give up a little bit in the run game. But I just think at you've been exposed so much in the pass game in the middle of the field from those safety spots. You've got to make either a personnel or a slight scheme adjustment to maybe even something back more to similar to what the strike safety did in coach Knowles defense. But I don't know if you can really do that at like one-to-one match in, in this three, three stack odd front scheme. So I I don't know what you do, but those are just some kind of things we were talking about that kind of played along with this Kendall Daniels, maybe not being the best fit at that spot. Yeah. It just, it seems like a bit of an athleticism thing. Like he's just not fast enough to cover the, the space, as you said, that is being asked of him. And I don't know where you put him. Like, I don't know if he's, you know, is he big enough to play linebacker? I, I don't know, but it's concerning going forward because I think you have to do something at the safety spot. And I think it needs to be something somewhat radical like that this yeah. year with the youth you have back there, Trey Rucker's situation kindled. Like, I just I would be open to pulling somebody in from the portal that is tailor made for that spot. Yeah. No, no, I agree. I, I think I don't want to say that. I love Kendall Daniels. He seems to love OSU, but that's a that it was it's it was apparent multiple times this year. No, I love Kendall Daniels as well. And I think that's a discussion we're gonna get into even more in the portal and as we get into spring football and things like that. Just wrapping up the safeties. Epson Smith, they were so at the field safety spot, they were so far away from the ball <laughs> <laughs> throwing it into these flats and everything the only notes i really have on them are like missed tackles you know two on i thought i thought dylan smith had two big missed tackles one on a third and 10 throw to mitchell one on the robinson td he also had the dpi penalty which he was right there if he just doesn't hug him with the left arm i think he still makes that play they have four tackles though epps got spun around really bad on a worthy screen he also got trucked by worthy but worthy luckily had already stepped out because i would have been replayed it already was replayed a bunch but even more and then rucker had seven tackles he's a guy that's been dealing with an ac sprain we found out took some bad angles early had some missed tackles but i do think he actually made a few good plays in this game and comparatively to the rest of the state yeah i think he was probably better than the other guys i mean they were they were almost in punt return how deep they were at times so it's like you know I give them some credit. I think they schemed, they were schemed around 
by their own coordinator in a way. Like it was a let's let's put these guys in positions where they're not going to be the focal point. And Texas, again, I think you have to credit them. They executed mostly flawlessly uh, throughout the entire course of the game to run their offense super efficiently. The one thing I'll say too, Dustin, Oklahoma State couldn't defend third and long for most of the season. I'm going to go back at some point in the offseason and get the stats on this. But how many times did it feel like Oklahoma State gave up a third and 10 plus? Much more than I felt like was normal. They did it twice in this game, I believe. It it was oh, just I, something that was very like aggravating as the as the year wore on. Yeah. So I on just total third downs, five plus yards, they were seven of twelve. Yeah. I mean, it it was it was rough. You know, the ten of fifteen because the it says ten of sixteen on the stats, but one of those third downs they kneeled it, so I took right. that one out. So they were ten of fifteen, and they were two of two. That's what I'm saying. It was just a tough, tough day on those money downs for Oklahoma State. And you know, kid, I really don't have anything else on the defense. I did want to hit a couple of quick special team notes because we mentioned some of these in the preview. Logan Ward did kick extra points. He made them both. Deer Creek, Antler Pride, baby. Cade, they had like no penalties in this game except for the kick-catch interference on the long snapper, Shea Frybaum. I I thought they were going to go a whole game without a special teams penalty, and then they get that. He tried to get out of the way. Shea's had a great season snapping it. I'm not going to hold that against him, but man, special teams penalties are going to kill me. I think that one was my least favorite of the entire season because you it's the opening drive. It's already a short field. That was a killer early on. You, you would like to flip the field and instead you get the ball inside your own 40 if you're Texas. So that was a killer. Oh yeah. And Bo Hardy had a nice kickoff tackle. Kick return was not great. I do love that bird Auburn missed a kick right after they said he'd made 19 straight. And then Nick session almost blocked a punt in the third quarter. And that would have been absolutely huge. Uh, And, you know, we kind of trashed Dylan Smith a little bit. He had a nice tackle on kickoff. So that's all I had. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Dustin, that was a great breakdown to a not so great game. Unfortunately, it wasn't as surprising as I think it, it might would have been nice to be like, that was just what you would have expected as very possible in a game like that. I I was going to say this earlier on, but Texas is my pick in the national championship in the college football playoff. I feel like what they have up front, they're good enough to, to beat anybody with. So it'll be fascinating to watch Uh, best team. I think Oklahoma state has played in the last several years. I would say multiple years since they played a team like that. So we'll see what happens, but a great season. I mean, all the accolades that we've talked about, all the superlatives, there's no question that this was an overachieving type of year. It's made apparent in a game like this, but you can't, you know, throw all that under the rug with with beating Kansas State, beating Kansas, Oklahoma. It was a fun year that ended in a uh, somewhat predictable way. Yeah, I had a blast. It, it, it was a great, it started out crazy, like you said, roller coaster. And then you end up in the Big 12 championship game for the second time in three years. So I had a great time, had a great time recording with you. Really appreciate everybody listening. We're going to do like a season wrap. I know there's still the bowl game. We'll do the bowl game preview and review 
But next week we'll do like, we'll record later in the week. We'll send some more info out about it on Twitter, but we'll do like a late season in the season mailbag where you guys can ask us Twitter questions on, we'll try to keep it, you know, we can talk basketball if you want, but we'll try to keep it football specific transfer portal recruiting things of that nature. So we'll send out some tweets on that. We'll give you guys multiple days heads up to where we can get all those questions in. But Cade, speaking of transfer portal, is it, is it time? Is it time for us to get back in? Oh, I hope it's not time like it was last year. I can, we've got to be two of the biggest Oklahoma state transfer portal podcast guys that have a podcast with the number 45 in it out there. Right. I would think that that's a pretty good claim for you and I. Yeah. And you know, at times we even talk about it when it's the transfer (laughs) puddle, much less the full on open waters portal that it was. Wow. I can't believe I once called it the transfer puddle compared to what happened last year. (laughs) So all jokes aside, Transfer Portal opened officially yesterday, December 4th. It used to be a 45-day window. That has been shortened to 30 days. So the portal will close on January 2nd, and then there will be another window from April 15th to April 30th. Hey, one thing that I think gets lost in the shuffle, and it's something we brought up, I think we forgot about it the first year of the portal, or I definitely did, you have to make sure you mention the dead period for all recruiting, which includes portal guys starts on December 18th yep. and it lasts through the end of the portal. So you really only, if you're a guy entering the portal through the end of the playoff, really have, you, through the end of the playoff, is that what you, you yeah. See? So basically the dead period goes until January 11th and the portal closes on the second. Yep. So it lasts through the end of the portal. Sorry. Okay, I, I gotcha, said that confusingly. Gotcha. So, you only have 14 days to visit a school and kind right. of make a decision wow. with the portal shortened by 15 days in the dead period happening, which it did last year too, but just a shorter, shorter portal. I think we're going to know everything here in the next week, week and a half. I would love that personally, the way it went last year was miserable. So I actually think that the lack of anything so far is a little bit indicative. You're going to see departures. You're going to see key departures, I think. I think they're going to be much fewer and far between. And I think that you will see a supplemental replacement, but it will not look, I don't think, anything like last year looked. So I agree totally with what you just said there. And Coach Gundy seems to think that as well. He said he thinks they'll know by next Monday who's going to play in the bowl. He's not 100% on that, but that's just his guess. He thinks most of the guys who played meaningful snaps this season will play in the bowl. And according to Robert Allen, Oklahoma State has room for six to seven portal acquisitions. Now, they did just offer a running back from South Carolina. That could take one of those spots. I'm not sure if he's accounting for that. But, you know, they lost, what, 19 guys in the portal last year. I think Gundy said 16, but I think it's actually 19 I don't expect that. We did want to hit real quick on the guys who are in. So we mentioned him earlier, Lodarius Webb, the junior safety. He posted his portal announcement on Twitter, and he actually was not with the team in Arlington, and he notified the coaches last week. So he gave them a heads up. He had previously tweeted out that he was going to redshirt this season. He's not going to be there. He, He really wasn't 
from the practice I saw, he wasn't even out there with like the threes. I don't think he ever really cr- got close to cracking the depth chart. He played in the Central Arkansas, Arizona State, and Cincinnati games, mainly as a special teams guy. Was a highly touted recruit coming out of JUCO. He was a junior college All-American, two-time All-Conference guy at Jones College. Didn't record any stats. I, I definitely think it's a loss coming as a depth piece, but they have so many young cornerbacks and safeties. I'm not super concerned about this. And he's really the only, I, I'll get into the other guys in a second, but he's really the only true loss that was actually on the team. That's it for me. It's like, you know, he was a guy that you and I talked about as hopefully one day contributes and that's just not going to come at Oklahoma state. So, you know, wish the best for him. I thought his, his tape was intriguing. I, I do, I do think he can play at the power five level. I just didn't think it was this year and you hope it's at some point. So next, this one's a weird situation. Okay. Tyrone Weber, offensive lineman. So he officially entered the portal after last season He was a JUCO guy from New Mexico Military Institute. He was the Southwest Junior College Football Conference Player of the Year as an offensive lineman and an All-American for the National Champion, New Mexico Military Institute. So he hasn't been with the team for over a year. And Robert Allen is saying that he actually, because of that and because Oklahoma State hasn't been able to get in contact with him when they've reached out to him, that they actually haven't officially like released him into the portal. So he's not actually like tied to Oklahoma state in the portal. If you go to on three, if you go to two, four, seven, he's going to show up, but apparently it's the, the ties don't exist anymore. I don't, I don't really understand how that's possible because I thought he would be linked to the team until he went somewhere else. But it sounds like, there may be some statute of limitations type thing here because Robert Allen's reporting that he's not associated with Oklahoma state in the portal any longer. That's wild. So I'll have to go in and look at what the, like what you just said there, like what that statute of limitations looks like or the technicality there. But I could have sworn that until you go somewhere else, you are, you know, you are with that, former school but i guess that's not the case it would make sense if you just like took a sabbatical or a year off and wanted to come back he wasn't in school at all i'm wondering if that has plays a part because now he has like no credits or anything like that uh, tied to him for the last year so i don't know robert allen may be incorrect there it was very confusing he brought it up twice on the radio and i wrote down what he said and that's what he said so i don't really know Exactly, but I did want to bring that up. And then the last guy is Ricky Lolahia, freshman defensive lineman. He left the team early in fall camp, the Euless Trinity product, 6'4", 280-pound defensive tackle. He hasn't been with the team since the first week of fall camp, so I don't really count that as a loss either. And that's really it, Cade. And I don't want... I Unless you want to get into it, we've already gone long on this podcast. I don't really want to speculate on this podcast about guys entering... One reason is because I think we're going to know pretty soon. Yeah. But if not, we can we can use that as a mailbag question to ourselves next Friday. But I did just want to hit on three guys really quick who Oklahoma State has been linked to in the portal. Yeah. If you don't mind. Let's do it. So offensive lineman Easton Kiltley from North Dakota has actually reported an Oklahoma State offer. He uh, reported that on November 27th, which doesn't really make sense. The portal opened on December 4th. 
but I think it's because he's a grad transfer with one year left. So he can go ahead and report that six, five, 305 pounder. He's got already got offers from Pitt, Iowa state, BYU, Virginia tech, Purdue, NC state, Mississippi state, Boston college, Auburn, Texas tech, 695 snaps at left tackle this year and summit left guard and right guard. He played right guard in 2020 through 2022. 1,413 career snaps at right guard. He also has 206 career snaps at right tackle. That was mainly in 2001. He started from 2021 through 2023, and he even started two games in 2020. He graded higher in run and pass blocking than any lineman on OSU's team, according to PFF. Well, let's see. I said Oklahoma State needs some guys on the offensive line. I, Where's he from, you said? North Dakota. Okay. I I do like it. I I like yeah. I like him corn fed. Yes. Next we have Tegan Wilk from East Carolina. He's reported interest from Oklahoma State, so not officially an offer. He's showing as a three star in the transfer portal on three rankings, 5'11, 190 pounds. He's a Pennsylvania native, spent the last four years at ECU playing in 35 games with 13 starts in the Pirates defensive backfield. Totaled 99 combined tackles, including six tackles for loss, two interceptions, three forced fumbles. He's got a seven-minute-long highlight reel on YouTube pinned on his Twitter if you want to watch it. He started four games this season making 10 tackles, but he suffered a season-ending neck injury, and he got a red shirt as a result of that. He's got two seasons of eligibility left. He's played both boundary safety and Sam linebacker, so think like Xavier Benson. I watched that highlight tape and they moved him all over the field. He had 177 snaps over the slot, 369 at the free safety spot, 356 in the box and 35 snaps lined up on the defensive line. So he's very versatile. He's got interest from BYU, OU, Michigan state, Maryland, Ole Miss, Houston, and Northwestern, just to name a few. Could that be your over next year? Seems like that could be a potential fit. I don't want to shove another, you know, uh, similar athlete in there, but it sounds like he's pretty versatile. And he's similar in size to what you saw from the rover at Gannon. Oh, interesting. Just so. the way you broke him down, I'm thinking rangy athlete. Yeah. And the last guy, wide receiver Kelly Akari from UTEP. He's showing interest from OSU, and he actually has reported some offers already. So it sounds like OSU might not be in the mix here since they haven't offered to our knowledge but he's been offered by K-State, Mississippi State, UNLV, and several several other smaller schools, showing he's a three-star on on three, 6'1", 194 pounds. He's coming off an awesome redshirt junior season in 2023. He's an Irving, Texas guy. He racked up over 1,000 yards receiving on 48 catches, seven TDs in 12 games at UTEP. He began his career at Tyler Junior College. He's got one year of eligibility remaining. He started the season looking at PFF as more. And I watched, I watched some highlight clips of him, but not as much as I watched on, uh, on Tegan. Cause he didn't have the long highlight video that I could find, but he started out the season as an outside receiver. And then as the season moved on, it was about a 50, 50 split between the slot and outside. And I think it's because he's looks to be insanely fast. So that slot lining him up in the slot gets him more of a clean release. He did have seven drops on the year, which is quite a few on PFF, but first team all conference USA, 711 snaps this year, 457, two years ago. I think this would be 
an awesome addition to the wide receiver yeah. room, but I'm not sure how in on him Oklahoma State is. I mean, the way you break him down, it's like, well, would that have been like a guy? Like, you may not have Brendan Presley next year, and you might, but you may not. Like, you need to be game planning around a world where that is your reality. So that would be really interesting. I don't, he, how big is he? You said six foot? He's six one. Six one, so bigger, two hundred pounds. Six that. one, two hundred. So yeah. That's why he can play in a couple of different spots. That 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 is an interesting prospect. But that's what I love about the transfer portal, Dustin. Is there are so many guys that it's like, yeah, there's already. 2, well, that would make the there. offense look totally different. So yeah, that would be fun. Yeah. Well, Kate, that's all I've got. I think we'll hear from one of our sponsors and then wrap this thing up. If you're good with that, love it. Awesome. Shout out to our sponsor, Wild Oak Lighting. If you don't know Wild Oak Lighting, they're your authorized jellyfish lighting dealer for the greater Oklahoma City area, Stillwater, and several other Oklahoma markets. Jellyfish lighting is a permanent but discreet color-changing LED lighting system for the exterior of your home. With 16 million different colors and patterns, jellyfish lighting can be used for Christmas, holiday, and accent lighting. And of course, Oklahoma State game day lighting. You can learn more about jellyfish lighting by checking out the website wildoak-lighting.com or you can follow them on Facebook and on Instagram at wildoak underscore lighting. You guys know I've got the jellyfish lights. They're awesome. They've been set up for Christmas. I had them dancing green and red last night. I thought it was cool. I'm sure it was very annoying to my neighbors, but they look great. The guys at Wild Oak are awesome. If you need more info on them than what I'm giving you on the ad read, Feel free to DM me. I had somebody reach out to me this week asking for some contact information. Please reach out to me because you will not regret working with Wild Oak and getting these lights installed on your house. I mean, between you and I, I mean, I had a conversation with multiple people this week. I mean, this work week, it's only Tuesday evening about Wild Oak lighting. And I don't know why you would go get your lights installed on your house and then pay to get them removed, and then pay to store them, and then pay to put them back, and then pay to remove them. Just get them put in. The guys at Wild Oak will take amazing care of you. I'm not even authorized to say that, but I know that for a fact. They've come out. They've quoted me. I'm now moving. I'm going to get them in my new house, so that is a commitment I have. I'm going to get them on the back patio as well, eventually. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Well, they and do I'm wearing my Wild Oak lighting shirt. I was showing Cade while he was talking. <laughs> they it got is a cool really jellyfish cool. logo. I don't know what a guy's got to do to get one of those, but maybe I just got to keep, you know, unauthorizedly, you know, speaking to what I know about those guys. They really do a great job. So we appreciate them supporting us this year. It never fails, Cade. Apologies if you could hear my dogs in the background. They know it's the end of the podcast when I start doing the wall lighting and they just start going nuts. I I couldn't hear them, Dustin. And uh, even if I did, it'd be great. You, you got two great dogs. What, hey, we do have late breaking news as we're hopping off the pod Derek mason did you see this he's uh -uh. the new head coach at middle tennessee so sounds oh, like nice. he has the blue ended raiders his, yeah he has ended his sabbatical and he's returning to football so it'll be interesting to uh see how that goes for him and well, all uh, the best for Derek absolutely. mason he seemed like a great guy uh it was cool to kind of have him in stillwater for one year even though that season didn't work out great but shout out to him and like I said, I'll put out a tweet next week, sometime maybe in the middle of the week about mailbag, and we'll take you guys' questions. And as we go into the offseason, we'll definitely try to hit a few questions whenever we can, try to bring that back. So didn't want to think that they were completely going away. 
Yeah, no question. And Dustin mentioned it a little bit earlier, but you'll get a little bit of a scheduling change as we move into the off season that we'll you know tell you more about next week. So Dustin, any final thoughts before we tie a bow on this regular season and dip into the off season? This will have already happened, but let's try to win this basketball game tonight in seven <laughs> minutes. Dude, one point favorites against Southern Illinois on the road. I, I'm not a gambler, but give me the Salukis. That seems like a trap. <laughs> I don't know. I just and I, apparently they're like they pack the house every game. Oh yeah, no, this is this is a nightmare of a road basketball game. So let's hop off. Let's not talk any longer. So that way you can go watch that. If you're not already, you can follow us at Feels Like Forty Five Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Threads. You can follow Dustin at Dustragoo, and you can follow me at Cade Webb. We'll see you guys back here next week for a mailbag. Send us your questions. We'll talk to you then. Go Pokes.